0: Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Oh dear! Hello, listeners! Hello, you wonderful ghouls of the audience. We are we are in for quite a treat for this episode of Spooky Season here at Horror Vanguard. I am one of your co-ghosts, guiding you uh, with with uh, my my fists thrusting against the posts. I'm joined as always by John, the Litcrit guy, who still insists he sees the ghosts. How's it going, John?
1: You know, I've looked into the deadlights. I have uh, been driven to the point of discursive insanity. I am ready to dive on in.
0: Oh, crap. Hang on. I, I Sorry, I have to add something to our notes because I have a take about the deadlights. Um, okay. Uh, where, do, where do I even put... God, this is going to be quite the episode. I don't even know where to put this. Um, I'm just going to put it here. Uh, uh, the 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 deadlights can be symbolically read as the headlights of oncoming vehicles. Uh, America has world-leading child mortality rates when it comes to kids being killed by cars, and and what are the deadlights if not the blaring headlights of an oncoming vehicle? It's really compelling, especially in the context of small-town America and Stephen King's kind of weird nostalgia. But that's just a sample of the kind of oh, I don't know, discursive cosmic spider venom we're going to be dishing out today.
1: Uh Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Indeed, indeed. Welcome, welcome to. Look, as we all know, as we all know. Hegel remarks somewhere that all things happen, as it were, twice. The first is tragedy, the second as farce. But of course, what Marx didn't realize. was that things don't just stop there. Um, And that every 27 years or so, a podcast is forced to talk about Stephen King, which is what we're doing today. Which is what we're doing today. And we are talking about... You know what we're talking about. We're talking about it. We're talking about it. Oh, I thought we were talking about it. It yes it oh not, it okay yeah uh, it what I mean it obviously not it oh yeah or, yeah but it it <laughs> it mm. uh, it 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 and uh, it um, spanning 1986 all the way up to 2019 um a co- complex theoretically dense challenging text um and so I think it's very important that we we start. At the beginning, by very clearly and simply setting out the stall of what today's episode is going to be about. Uh, and for that, Ash, my dear friend, would you mind uh, the official, you know, the official keeper of the history
2: <laughs>
1: of of the, the, the dairy that is this podcast? Would you mind explaining Stephen King's It? He cannot free himself from time, and yet his personal experience of it
2: is an anarchy.
0: Time and memory are two of the foundational blocks of our existence, but they are also two of the most insecure and fleeting. Time flees from us while memory is subtly faded and renegotiated over time. Memory hangs over us like a shroud, a mist we are amidst. Memory can bite like a frost so fierce, be as personal as lips on the skin of a bare wrist, or summon the celebration of a stout boast. It can be all of those things, but it can never be total, never eternal. We thrust our fists back into time to reach for the baubles of our past, but we only ever grasp at a receding fog. The posts that mark our way through life are gnawed and weathered with age, but even as their shape becomes indescribable, the path we walk by their guidance becomes ever more defined and cut into our landscape. We may insist we see memories as clear as day, but they are ghosts, and all we see is our feet upon familiar ground.
2: At the moment of catastrophe, time can stretch into vivid, ineradicable detail.
0: Amidst the mists and fiercest frosts, with barest wrists and stoutest boasts, he thrusts his fists against the posts, and still insists he sees the ghosts. Join us as we discuss every adaptation of Stephen King's It.
1: The hot clock ticks faster. Yes, 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 yes. I, I think we have to start. I think we have to start, as we, as we always do by circling the terrifying storm drain of formal themes um so a a question to kind of begin our 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 journey through the storm drains of discursive analysis who the the fuck is stephen king (laughs) who is who is stephen king
0: Uh, Stephen King, uh, born in 1947, aged 75 at the time of the recording of this podcast, still alive and well and churning out new works. Um, Easily one of the most prolific writers in American history in general, responsible for a wide range of of celebrated texts, both in and out of the horror genre, Um, probably historically going to go down as the successor of writers like Poe and Lovecraft in terms of at the very least, the impact on the landscape of American horror. Uh, really, there's so much to say about Stephen King, partly because when you have a body of work this prolific there, you'll never run out of things to say. Uh, uh, do, do, you have, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, oh, famously famously fought with uh, legendary director Stanley
1: Kubrick. So also that. Um, well, maybe maybe we can kind of start this out on a more personal note. What's your what's your experience with King? What do you think about King? Like, I mean, like 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 as a latchkey kid, I, I like kind of like grew up
0: in the public library, right? Like, naturally gravitated towards horror owing to my character. Um, read a bunch of Lovecraft, read a bunch of Poe, read a bunch of King. So I I was I think reading King at, at a very appropriate age. His books, despite their adult content, I think work really well for the younger crowd. Um and I think a lot of that has to do with Stephen King's own fixation on nostalgia for childhood. Um a major theme of his writing, so it winds up connecting with a young audience very strongly. Um it's kind of kind of my my background. Uh, uh how about you?
1: Well, I think the very first horror novel I remember reading or having a clear memory reading is the next book that King wrote after It. Um which is Misery. Um, oh, nice. Which we will get on to. I remember reading that when I was like thirteen, fourteen. I am I'm I'm actually quite fond of Stephen King in lots of ways. Um I in, in a way, in, in a way, maybe I'm slightly nostalgic for them for, for reading Stephen King's for the first time. Um in, in like, I think it's difficult to it's difficult to overstate how popular Stephen King yeah. both both was and is. So Absolutely so um, it is uh, pretty well into his career by now. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. F- novel number 15, I think, if, I, if I'm doing my, my maths right. Um, ni- 1986, 1985, he was on the cover of Time magazine. Stephen King was so successful, uh, so popular. Uh, sold millions and millions of every book that he brought out uh the skeleton key was the one before this which was the one that he said he was gonna um i know it was pet cemetery he said he wasn't gonna publish because it was too scary the skeleton key was like short stories uh like he was he was getting like high six figure advances for every book mm-hmm. like he he was a big big deal um and I guess, I guess maybe it's worth starting by going like, why do you think Stephen King is so popular?
0: I think this is really interesting. Right? And part of this is because like, like I grew up primarily reading like Poe and Lovecraft as like my two go-to choices for horror. Um, and a lot of the ways that people have relationship to Stephen King's writing, I have like a relationship to Poe and Lovecraft. Like that's the stuff that I I think of when I think of childhood and nostalgia and like, early teen years, horror reading, uh, primarily those two authors. Um, And I think like part of the reason why King is so popular, though, is because he was writing the type of fiction he was writing at the perfect moment for it. His his particular mix of nostalgia, the horrific, the types of horror he was invoking, it it doesn't wind up being pastiche for either Lovecraft or Poe. It doesn't wind up being classifiable as like, oh, he's another Lovecraftian writer, even though he draws heavily from Lovecraft. And once said it is in his shadow, referring to Lovecraft, so long and gaunt in which we all stand. Um, We all referring to horror authors at the time. Um, I I think he's also very clever when it comes to understanding his position more broadly in the history of American horror writing. And he has, I think, a very healthy appraisal of his own craft. You know, like we, we, we just got done t- talking a lot about Guy Smith and Garth Marenghi, right? The, the kind of prototypical horror authors who are wholly consumed by their ego and their masculine bravado and their own sense of presence. And I think St- Stephen King has always been like, I, I think like, you know, he refers to himself as the McDonald's of, of, of literature, right? The McDonald's of horror. And and I think like that's that's incredibly accurate. Like I don't think there's a better way to phrase it. Like m- millions served, but also served with like mysterious burger slurry. It's it's incredibly popular, very very accessible. It's everywhere you'd ever want to be, but also it's not the best, not the worst. Stephen King,
1: what what are some of your thoughts? Um, I really like. I think I suspect Stephen King would agree with John Waters the famous John Waters quote, the good taste is the enemy of art. Mm-hmm. Like St- Stephen King is not a kind of great literary writer. He's a good, uh, he has an understanding of like how sentences work, but it's quite practical. You know, uh, On Writing is a really good book um, yeah. be- because it basically talks about how you build a book. And it's like, you kind of bolt stuff together and you see what works and you get like a good 1800 words of clean copy every day and you bang out a book. And it's like, I I kind of respect that. I have a grudging respect for that. He's he's not trying to be anything that he isn't. Um, Absolutely. But I think, but I think we should probably kind of like just if people are not super familiar with King, we should probably run down some of the key Stephen King themes.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really also important to highlight in his like dance macabre, like his book specifically on like horror as a form in literature. He he talks about his approach to scaring people as. If you know, like to to hit to hit them with some terror, right? To 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 do something psychological to them and to do something cognitive, and and failing that, you just gross them the hell out. Yeah, totally. And and, and that is one hundred percent reflective of how he approaches fear. Right? He's not he he is simultaneously attempting to achieve something cognitive with you and, and to go for the kind of gothic terror tradition, but also he's completely not afraid of just doing something disgusting to to kind of keep the fires roaring, as it were.
1: Yeah. I, I- and I respect that. I think that's a very... I oh, think totally. A very, it's a very laudable approach to things. Um, I, like I, the, I feel... Oh, go on. No, go on. What were you going to say? I was going to say, I feel
0: a, a lot of the ways that people feel for Lovecraft, I feel for Stephen King. Y- you know, like, like I, there's definitely this, like, there's a lot to discuss here. There's a lot going on. He's a prolific writer for good and for bad. I mean that. Um, but there's also this kind of, like, there's like a craft level respect you, you know, like the horror is successful. You know, the gross outs are successful. You know, like the I think that begrudging respect that you were you were evoking is is absolutely true with Stephen King.
1: What uh, What's your favorite King book? Ooh, 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 ooh. Like I mean, gun, pet- gun to your head, oh, go- you got to choose. You got to choose one. What are you going for? Um, Cycle of the Wolf. I know Ooh, it's really short. Yeah. Um, and
0: if, if we don't want to count that, because I think that's technically a novella and not like a proper book. Uh, for If we have to pick proper book, I'm going Pet Cemetery. Yeah,
1: Pet Cemetery um, is great. Yeah,
0: but if, if I had to pick one single thing that Stephen King made, um, Cycle of the Wolf was his piece of writing that left the single biggest impact on me. Because I think in, in so many ways it has to take on different shapes because of the nature of the protagonist in that one yeah um and their particular disability and how that relates them to the world yeah i think it's it's a really interesting approach and exercise and there's a lot to discuss in there like both good good and bad but incredibly gripping but pet cemetery if i have to go for a full work how about you
1: um there's a lot there's a lot that i like um i think i think uh Gerald's game and Dolores Clay Claiborne are both really really good. I have a I'll always have a soft spot for Misery.
0: Um, I, I think, knew you were going to say Gerald's game. I, I just think, like in my bones. I was like John's going to say Gerald's game.
1: <laughs> I I honestly think uh, Carrie is an incredibly good debut for a horror writer. Oh yeah. I uh, I I I I also remember. I also remember. I have a kind of weird soft spot for another one. Actually, the the next the next novel that uses Derry, um as a setting, um, which is Insomnia. Okay. Okay.
0: Interesting. Interesting.
1: Uh, it's it's very weird. It's like eight hundred pages long. It's, what are the odds? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's kind of like mid period Stephen King. You know, I think it's actually quite good. And it's it's one I remember reading one day uh, in the school library. I I used to suffer with really quite bad insomnia when I was a kid, so like I I I have a soft spot for it. But like I think Carrie is great. I think um, The Shining is really good. I love Pat Cemetery, and I'll always have a soft soft spot for Misery. Yeah, Misery is also fantastic. So here here is a theory that I have, which is like King is not great at, like, super original high-concept stuff, but really loves um, the same kind of grouping of things, which is, like, small-town Americana, old-school rock and roll from, like, the 50s through to the early 70s, old-school television, and, like, like American popular culture from the mid-20th century. So my, my, my theory is this, which is... Stephen King is to American horror writing as Rob Zombie is to American horror cinema.
0: I I never thought I'd be so proud of a take you'd have. <laughs> <laughs> that is so beautiful and so accurate and so piercing. I love it.
1: I was I was expecting you to not agree.
0: <laughs> no, no, I think I think that's totally right. I, well, I think they approach their medium in in very similar ways, but I think that they're Aesthetically, they've chosen different aesthetics, right? Because Rob Zombie is is heavily owing to psychedelia, which is mm. something that Stephen King almost never touches. Yeah, um, um, it's it's very not his his wheelhouse. But then again, Stephen King's poisons of choice were never
1: psychedelics. Um, no, it was it was, uh, it was at the time of this novel's writing, famously huge amounts of beer and fat lines of cocaine.
0: Yes, yeah, depressants and accelerants, which which I think, or, or uppers rather, like Stephen King's writing reflects that. Whereas Rob Zombie, like the animated sequence in Beavis and Butthead Do America, speaks for itself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but I think I think they're both doing something very similar, but with also with different cultural focuses. Because in the same way that Stephen King loves and samples from, kind of like Stephen King is is Norman Rockwell, but for horror. Like yes, he's, sam- he's sampling from this nostalgic period of small town Americana. The, you know, he's, he's, he's putting ghosts in the Andy Griffith show. And Rob Zombie's doing something incredibly similar, but he's looking at Hollywood and, and he's looking at the carnival as an American format, the circus. Um, or I shouldn't say the circus, but more properly, the carnival. There are fine distinctions there, but important ones for Rob Zombie's character as an artist. But formally speaking, they're incredibly similar. I, I agree with that.
1: Yeah. I th- I think in terms of like seeing themselves as like products of a very particular time and place, but filtered through very particular th- – through their own distinctive aesthetic sensibilities. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, I, th- I think Stephen King is like horror fiction's Rob, Rob Zombie. But there are some prob there there are there are some limitations, right? There are some problems which come with this, right? Uh, often the writing is not great. Uh, sometimes the stylistic ticks can kind of like almost become self-parodic. Uh, like he loves inserting parentheticals or italics mm-hmm. into sent- into sentences. It happens quite a lot in in it. Yeah. Um. And should we should we talk about Stephen King writing about women? No.
0: (laughs) Moving on. Thank you for coming to the podcast, everyone. Uh, Good night and goodbye.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's uh,
0: it's not great. It's uh, it's it's just a picture of the memes. Her boobs bounced breastily down down the busty (laughs) staircase. It's just that you
1: know. Well, the thing is, the thing is, it's like it's not as it's not it's not quite as because I'm like I'm like I feel like whenever I'm reading Stephen King especially like early to mid-career Stephen King writing about women I'm sort of like you're trying your best
0: but <laughs> it's it's like it's like a it's like a 13 year old boy in their first creative writing class or something like it, it feels very juvenile in a negative sense of that inexperienced uncritical
1: uh yeah um, I mean I mean it bad. Uh, it's not great and like this is the same with King whenever he starts writing about what we might call like Issues like Stephen King on on race, um, I mean, no. you know, th- it's not it's not good at all. Uh, I mean, this and, is very, yeah. very this is very obviously a kind of well-meaning boomer who grew up in one of the whitest states in America. Yes,
0: and I, th- I think to, to to go back to the writing about women, I think I think to also touch on his writing about sex and sexuality there, um, and so again to contrast him with a figure like Guy Smith, right. Like, not, 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 Neither of these gentlemen are, let's say, uh, particularly nuanced in in their descriptions of of women's bodies. Um. But, but I will say, like Ga- Guyon Smith is not afraid to like write sex, and I think that there's something a little squeamish in Stephen King's sex scenes. It, it's he, his his writing style. I think is. Is that that same sense of nostalgia, right? His focus on childhood and youth, I think, also haunts his fiction. I, I think, I think, it, it, in the in the same way that it makes his his depiction of the Losers Club feel so organic, it also stays his hand when it comes to 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 kind of going there in all respects in his literature. I think there's a Norman Norman Rockwell could never paint someone's body being ripped open. And I think that that also kind of haunts the fiction of Stephen King.
1: I mean, that's a, that is a a bold thing to say, considering there is an infamous moment in this book. Um, oh, whoa, the, whoa, 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 oh, ho that, do, that, that does not really feature in either of the adaptations, properly speaking. Thank God. Uh, uh, and we are going to have to talk about that in a minute. But let's... Yeah a minute <laughs> let, let us let us talk about this book then let's talk about what, the book itself if we've done a little bit uh, on kind of like King as an author um, this is this is a, like King has this reputation for just writing incredibly long books and lots of them are but some of his best stuff, some of his best stuff is actually super short um, agree Carrie is like 300 pages The Shining Cycle isn't the particularly <laughs> long Cycle of the Wolf isn't that long Pet Cemetery isn't that long
0: um, I wonder if it says something that all my favorite Stephen King's work. Stephen King works are some of his shortest.
1: But I also think I also think length is not in and of itself bad thing. But this one is long. This one is really yeah. long. Look, uh, if
0: you can make it through Stephen King's, do not complain about a thousand
1: plateaus. <laughs> uh, this is eleven hundred pages. It has like section breaks. It has multiple timelines. It has multiple uh, narrative voices. What do, what do you think about where this comes in Stephen King's kind of career, in the development of his writing?
0: So I think I think you and I might have some divergent takes on this one. Perhaps not uh, in conflict, but nevertheless looking at things from separate directions. Maybe um, I'm not like adverse to longer format media as as is something that. We all know by now. Um, and this includes literature, but I do think that this book is way too damn long. It 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 could could have used a heavier hand when it comes to editing. And I think we're at a point in Stephen King's career when it comes out where Stephen King is a household name. Stephen King is both now a living human being with thoughts and hopes and dreams and fears and an achy back in the morning, just like all of us. Um, and And he's also a brand. He's an investment opportunity. He's an asset in a portfolio for a board of directors and a stockholder. This, this puts us in a situation where you, you, when you're getting six-figure advances for your book, a lot of people stop saying no to you. It's, it's the George Lucas problem, right? You know, like, like George, George Lucas's best work comes at the heavy hand of editing. You know, when other artists look on, look on the text and go like, oh, that's great. That's cool. That's something that never needs to see the light of day. Um, and, and my my feeling about it is that this book needs revision like this fe- this feels like reading it feels like the it that would be released posthumously the unedited uncut text that that's found in the attic you know of, of the 500 page book that, that that became a huge success right the, the, This feels like the marginalia it. Uh, what is what are some of your thoughts on this one?
1: So this is a super interesting. This is a super interesting moment in in Stephen King's career. Mm. Um, like this is a, this is a very big book. It took four years to write. It is uh, probably one of his most ambitious. It's certainly one of his most popular. Weirdly, yeah. I would I I would argue it's one of his many books which are f- effectively science fiction stories. I, I agree. I agree. Um, and this is it's like the end of the series of books that started so like if you break if you look at his career, there are a lot of books that he started writing when he was like dirt poor yeah um and was not successful. This one is the one that was the he wrote this when he was like first very successful mm-hmm. um, it is it had a first printing of a million copies, which is absolutely. Ooh. Absolutely ludicrous for first yeah. printing. Uh, it was the 10th best-selling novel of the entire 1980s. Mm-hmm. Right. It did it did wild numbers. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I, I kind of agree that it's too long, but I also love it for its length as well.
0: Oh, Sam, Sam, I, I agree. I, well, I mean, like, I, to make my argument clear, uh, clearer, I should say, there's a there, there's an edited version of this book that could have existed that is infinitely superior to the book that we've gotten in terms of craft as a piece of horror fiction. The book that we've gotten, however, is is you know like it, it does have elements of sci-fi, but I also think that this is a mystic text. There's a lot of like. King, King likes to flirt with this really interesting cosmicism and and this, this kind of, like, he, he's constructed his own, like, pseudo-religious mythology within a lot of his books and it comes out in this one really strongly with Maturin and all of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there, and, is and, a, there is a bit of me that thinks, like, when it, get, when it comes to length, I think American critics get quite puritanical you know there's this kind of like oh you you're supposed to be restrained you're supposed to be you know a good east coast massachusetts uh puritan and you you know he's but Stephen King is like is bad taste and i mean that as a positive thing so he just throws everything in kind of like completely unabashed and it gets very weird and occasionally it gets very silly but but i am i'm i'm i am sort of fond of this book mm mm-hmm. mhm Oh yeah, definitely, and like that's
0: that's like totally totally valid. If if one of your like desires is maximal Stephen King, it is a great choice. He's a great author for like this book is incredibly meandering and and full of odd details and chronologically woefully just what's the word I'm looking for here? Like it's it it just bounces around, right? It's it's very chronologically energetic, you know, like.
1: Yeah. It, honestly, honestly, it like, beach read cliches are normally, like, pejoratives, but I'm like, if you have a day or two with nothing much to do, pick up this, and you'll have a good time.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, If you're if
0: you're looking to have both a good time, a spooky time, and some of the most awkward times of your human existence, I recommend reading Stephen King's It.
1: All right, so what do you think this book is actually about? How do we, how do we read this? How do we, how do we respond?
0: So, so this is something that I find to be really interesting in terms of it. And this also ties into its length, right? Um, It's a lot easier to kind of like critically assail shorter forms of media because by, by definition, they must contain less. There is less in them to explore. It is 1,100 pages it makes it functionally impossible to adapt this text into the filmic form just just off of its length alone all of the regular troubles of that aside this book is just long and i think when it comes to discussing what this book is about it's about 1100 pages long like it's about a lot of things literally like there are a lot of things in this book and that means that we as critics can kind of take take stephen king's it and the adaptations thereof and, and just just go wild. Just do what we want. Just have fun because if, if you want to talk about something, it's probably in Stephen King's It.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. In a, in Stephen a way, King's
0: It failed to predict Bitcoin hashtag.
1: In a way, I think... So King said at this point in his career he wanted to stop writing about dead kids. Um, I mean, wah, a,
0: that, wah, wah, wah. Wah. <laughs>
1: That's like that's like a big thing in The Shining, in Pet Cemetery, in Cat. Ka- like it's yeah. it's all in there, and it's there here. But really, this is a novel about like it sounds. It sounds almost a little bit cliche, but this is a novel about growing up, right? It's it, it, in a way. It's a kind of it's a bildungsroman. It's a coming of age story, and it's like, well, what does that mean? What does it What does it actually mean to become a, to to go through that process? Um. I, especially when we get onto its kind of themes and how later adaptations explore them, it's uh, it, 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 it's a kind of this. Actually, this is the thing: a lot of people don't like Stephen King for one very good reason, which is like he's deeply sincere, almost like embarrassingly sincere
2: mm-hmm.
1: about everything. Um, and I'm like, I, I I respect that. And this is a, in in some ways is a kind of like achingly, almost like cloyingly sincere bit of writing.
0: Oh, he's post cringe for sure. Yeah, uh, Stephen yeah.
1: Stephen King does not care about being cringe.
0: No, which is which is one of the things I find really refreshing about his writing. He's not afraid to to express his thoughts and feelings. He doesn't need to cloak them at, at all. You know, like when I, when I mentioned that his hand was kind of stayed by the juvenalia, I don't think that that bothers his writing. It's not something he's struggling against. It's something he's okay with. Um, and when I say he here, I'm, I'm kind of more referring to his body of work and not him as a person because I don't know Stephen King. Um, and one one thing that I do think is really interesting is like, this is four years after The Body, um, and you see a lot of that Stand By Me energy in Stephen King's it. This is very much oh, s- yeah. Stand By Me with with Spoopy, like oh like, yeah 100%, a spooky clowns. 100%. And and I think like you know you know the body stand by me is very norman rockwell very nostalgic very like like it's 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 the kid with with the dirty blue jeans and the slingshot in his back pocket you who you know who's got a paper route on the weekends and and they're just going to go skip rocks down at the creek like like that's very much an energy that's present here in the text
1: Yeah. yeah 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 um so it's th- there is oh gone on, gone on, gone on, gone. What I really like about it is that you know King King is often very interested in nostalgia, but can be quite cutting about it because there's in my to my mind there's a sort of argument this is made in the eighties in the middle of of Reagan's kind Do of like it. big pay on to the American nineteen fifties, and like this is a novel about how Say the nineteen fifties fucking suck about how growing growing up there is terrifying adults are abusive or cold or absent and like the very town that you live in is kind of historically just rotting from a kind of miasmatic evil that rises out of the ground and gets inside of your head right in i i I don't i think there's a lot of complexity that we can add to how the politics of this novel and these adaptations play out but i think this is part of it the king king is nostalgic but is also not writing kind of like fifties hagiography, no. Which for the, which for the eighties is actually kind of cool. That's a that's a cool thing, um, because he's he is all the the cops in this are awful authority figures should not be trusted, and generally adults in Stephen King novels do not come off well. What what do you think about this idea? What do you think about it being like a kind of anti Reaganite horror story?
0: Oh, there it is. Shots fired. Uh, yeah, you you dear listeners, you come here for one thing and we are delivering today. Um, so I think that this is a really interesting way to approach it specifically. Right. I'm going to focus on it here rather than a lot of the other works that come out in this time period, because I think I think like Stand By Me Slash The Body does a lot of hagiography for like the 50s boy like boyhood in a, a specific time and i think that it it is an interesting text and 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 i don't want to reduce it to something right i don't want to try and say that it is reactionary and fulfills a certain ideological goal for a conservative political mentality i also don't want to attribute to this text a kind of left-facing appraisal of history, um, because I think it's doing both. I think that this text offers us an opportunity to do some very interesting critical work and do some very interesting explorations um, rather than kind of didactically committing to one direction or the other. It's kind of handing us a lot more utility when it comes to, like, as we are, politically open and politically motivated critics of art. Um, y-
1: yes, and I, yeah. I think I think that's actually something that the novel itself addresses, which we will get onto. And I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't think King commits one way or the other. I think there is a reading of the novel that you can make as distinctly kind of like antithetical to this Reaganite ideology, harking back to a yeah. pre- pre-lapsarian American golden age of the fifties. Um, yes, I think that's, yes. I, I think that's in
0: there. I, I do agree. I do agree that's in there. But I think I think the kind of there, there, there's almost like like a, a parasitic inversion of that that's also in here. There's like a giant spider laying its eggs inside of this book. Um, and that giant spider is kind of S- Stephen King is not just like nostalgia is very weird in it. And I think it becomes nostalgic for homophobic violence, racist violence, misogynistic violence, as well as critical of those nostalgias. Like, like it, it, it's it's simultaneously waxing about the it's waxing about the ways that things were, while also being kind of critically engaged with that. It, it's yes. kind of doing both. And oh, we are oh dear
1: God, we're going to get into so much. <laughs> well, like I think that this comes to the problem of memory, right? This is a book that is in many ways concerned with memory. Like, what can you remember? What what are you allowed to remember? How 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 does the process of memory work? within the wider process of subjectification right as as in we don't remember everything about our our growing up with perfect clarity and in some ways that's arguably some ways that's good right we don't want to remember but in some ways it's the stuff that we repress it's the stuff that we try and force ourselves to forget that is the most formative upon who we are so i think you're right there is this tension between like how does memory work and how does history work in the context of this novel
0: and this, this tension is, in, is, is as tense as, as it can possibly be, because I think we realize a very important truth here, and that's history is never a settled subject, right? History is an active and living body of texts that serves specific ideological functions and purposes, right? We, we, have, we have this kind of enlightenment ruse that history could be a neutral science, you know that, that history can be just a strict measurement of the past in the same way we would measure lengths of wood um, but but history is is deeply ideological and deeply informed, and there are multiple historicities and approaches to these uh, issues and how we construct them, and I think that that's alive and well in it, right because the town the town of Derry has an ideological view of their past right that that stays forever neutral to the horrifying violence that keeps erupting in this town yes. And, and even by the end of the novel, our, our characters' attempt to articulate the history of that violence and that shape of it winds up being lost, just like their memories. You know, an, a kind of active engagement is required to keep these things alive, but an active engagement isn't even enough. Like, the passage of time gnaws at everything. It, the, the, you know, to, to go deep on the Stephen King, this is very Langoliers. Mm, um, yeah. But the, the the past is literally being devoured as as the future sucks us forward. Um, and this is something very troubling that that's that's going on in it, and I think it it affords us opportunity to discuss about how that's happening in our world.
1: There's a great line right towards the end of the novel where King writes, "The eye of the day is closing," which mm-hmm. I I think is a really I think is a really kind of beautiful turn of phrase. Yeah. Um, but it's like that's that's how memory works, right? You you have a world around you that you think is kind of fixed and and sensible and you know, is measurable in that quantification in that in that way of quantification. You know, you close your eyes one minute and then you open them and it's like you're a whole different person. Yeah. There's a there's a quote from the book that the the self-insert Stephen King character says that I think we should probably talk about whilst we're picking over this. Uh, Right towards the beginning of the book, after he gets the call from Mike Bill, we get some some of Bill's backstory of when he was a creative writing student. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, And he gets into it with his creative writing teacher and he says that if fiction and politics ever do really become interchangeable, I'm going to kill myself. Because he says, politics changes, but stories are forever. Yeah, and I'm like, that's a pretty good assessment and damning indictment of Stephen King's own approach to the politics of his narratives. I I was gonna say here's here's where we
0: start to see some of the cracks in in Stephen King's ability to be critical of his own nostalgia, right? But because that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 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 Bill, young young creative writing student Bill is absolutely enraging me. His creative writing, uh, TA, who's attempting to to get him to understand the the complex nature of human storytelling, and and he's standing up going like, "Oh my God, you're a woke liberal NPC. Why are you trying to put politics back in my stories? Do you think Shakespeare was political? No, he was in. Oh my God, and I could like." I, I just I, I see in my burning blood the visions of a twenty year old Bill in a college class. Oh, breathe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, it's, but like this—that's exactly the problem, right? Which is that like stories are not the same. Stories are not the same forever. Stories depend upon who you are when you tell them and who you are when yep. you've lived them, and who you're telling them to and who's listening. And, and Why those, and the politics
0: and, and the politics and the politics?
1: All of those questions are tied up in the in the politics of them, right? Yeah. yeah. But if if we're going to talk about the politics of this novel, we have to talk about uh, its antagonist. Uh, what are clowns, Ash? What are, what 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 the fuck are clowns? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Welcome to Clown Town, everybody. We're going to the Clown Zone. This is going to be great. Ah, ah. Um, me, me, let's, me, have, me. Let's, have, let's have a little fun here let's have a little fun uh so like like I like lo- I like clowning you know I like clowns I like the history of clowns you know like like I do I do balloon twisting I do juggling like like there's natural overlap I'm a fan of ICP I'm a fan of rob zombie there's a lot of like clown clownalia in there no I don't think that's how I'm gonna say that um, <laughs> <laughs> like there's a lot of this in there right and like the The figure of the clown is fascinating to me, right? Like, uh, you know, like really grew up watching Bozo the Clown, and as, as somebody in America, like you know, Ronald McDonald was everywhere in my youth. Like, like the figure of the clown is ever present, or was ever present for a brief period of time. Um, and and so like this this makes it really interesting for me, right? Like, like I. I get the memes behind like, oh, all clowns are scary, but I hate how that has kind of become a pseudoscience. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah, that yeah. The, the people are like, oh, well, all clowns are definitionally scary because they are unheimlich and, and, you know, on, they their uncanny valley expressions naturally scare the human animal. And I'm like, okay, we're doing fucked up clown phrenology right now. Let's skip this. And I think it's much more interesting to just do his, clown historical materialism. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Marx failed to predict the fuck out of that one. <laughs> what, do you,
1: what do you mean? Well, so like,
0: let's look, it at, look like? at let's look at it, let's look at what it is as a clown, right? Because clowning is ancient, right? Right? Clowning is an ancient form of human expression. You know, there are things that humans just kind of start doing, right? Mm-hmm. And the antics of the clown are one of them. We we seem to, we just seem to start making music. Is, is another thing that humans just kind of do. We tell stories. It's a thing that we kind of do. And the kind of performative buffoonery of the clown is just kind of something humans do. Um, not always as the clown as we see it today. You know, it's there, there wasn't Cave Ronald McDonald. Um, although there could have been. Do-do-do. Time paradox. <laughs> um, but, like, you know, the, the activities, right? Like, the the shape of the clown is kind of recursive, you know? court gestures there's evidence of clown type uh uh, performativity in ancient egypt and like it's kind of a thing um which i find to be really interesting so like stephen king's clown it it, it's it's a it's a grotesque white face is is the technical name for the clown that that this is right A, a white face clown is a clown that has the white face paint and the grotesque is a variation of that that has really exaggerated facial features, the big, the big button nose, the, um, and then like the big smile. It's a grotesque, and that stems from stage performances and your audience being really far away and needing to see you. You know, so if you paint on a really big frowny face, they'll know that you're a sad clown. You know, even if they're sitting a hundred feet away from you and can't see very well because glasses weren't invented, <laughs> and, and, or not commonly accessible. Uh, And then like elements of Stephen King's clown also is informed by the minstrel show in the American tradition, uh, which is deeply fucking racist. And part of that because happens because the minstrel show collapses as an art form as we as a society recognize that it's really fucking racist and we shouldn't do that. And a lot of the elements of it, though, get sucked into American clowning. Right. So so we see elements of ra- American racism and American portrayals of racism getting pulled into that, which winds up kind of reverberating back and feeding into like European depictions of the clown. This is a whole thing. There's a whole thing for clowning and racism that we can get into at some point in this if we really want to. Well, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's
1: do it. Let's do it. Do it. Steven, let's, Steven, let's
0: get into it. Yeah, uh, Stephen King's clown, his it draws on that, right? Like, you know, like w- w- there's a specific, you know, when when Georgie first meets the clown, right, in the book specifically. This doesn't appear so much in the movies, but in the book specifically, right? Like, one of the first descriptors we hear is that white Fleischer glove of the clown. And that's that's something that's just pulled straight out of minstrel shows, right? Like, so, so those elements exist in this, and in, in like, in kind of like drawing all of this stuff together to kind of like paint the picture of clowns as being something much more complicated. We tend to be weirdly reductionist when we talk about clowns, especially in horror. Um, but, but they're a much deeper historical character, right? They have a lot more expression. They're not very popular today. Uh, uh, clowns have fallen out of vogue, if, if you will, but it would shock me if they did not one day come back as, as a popular form of, of comedic entertainment. Um yeah, I don't know what, what, what are your thoughts on the clown. I realized I've been I've been I've been clowning around for a minute here.
1: Uh you know, I I agree obviously we could trace this all the way back to the Commedia dell'arte yep. uh the the Absolutely. the f- four different Roman versions of the clown. Um, yep. Yep. and it's and that kind of tradition. I also think it's important to t- trace the roots of the clown as you put it as you pointed out into the minstrel shows but also into the relationship of clowns to political power.
0: Absolutely, which, absolutely. Which is the,
1: the role and function of the fool. Yep. yep. Um. So the fool has always been an interesting figure in kind of like narrative history, mostly because they are the point of destabilization. They're the point yep. of, of, of collapse in the social order. And they are allowed to do and say things that like would get other people killed.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, who's who's the only person who can make fun of the king and has free license to do that without fear of being summarily executed? So the court jester.
1: Yeah, so the, the fool is this kind of, like, interesting... The court jester is this interesting figure, um, precisely in their interstitiality and the way yeah. in which they yeah. kind of expose the fractures of the social order.
0: Yep. Absolutely. That, that, is, that is absolutely true, and, like... Clowning just kind of naturally appears at those at those stress points, and and those moments of fracture. There's there's something, not not to wax too political, but there's something about the kind of gothic excess of the clown and gothic here in the same way that, uh, um, Horace Walpole's Strawberry Hill is gothic, right? Like like not not just ghosts and ghouls, but also gloomth and excess and and these weird grafted components there's there's something about the the kind of uncertainty that that thing naturally embodies that makes you call into question aspects of the world around it
1: yes, exactly exactly i just um, I just
0: compared one of one of the most striking and unique achievements of of Anglo architecture to to bozo the clown
1: <laughs> but also but also oh dear clowns cl- this is precisely why clowns are terrifying right what yes. clowns represent represent uh chaos the, the, like the psychoanalysis I think has some really interesting ways of looking at the clown the cl- children are scared yeah. of clowns and and drawn to them at the same time Clowns are funny yeah. because they're yeah. they they embarrass themselves publicly and our own fear of our own embarrassment can be transferred onto them right? Yes, but at the same time, yes. cl- clowns are frightening because they represent a breakdown of the social taxonomies and orders by which we make ourselves a person in the first place. And, right? and clowns, it's-
0: yeah, I was just gonna say, clowns are beings of pure tension, and and wielding the space of that tension can collapses necessarily either into fear or hilarity.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: And then you you're, you're completely right too. There's something you about the clown, right? Like it, it's it's this kind of uh, like it's 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 almost like an event of a character, right? It's like a limit experience in a sense of the clown. You know, it has to collapse one way or another.
1: I mean, this is why, you know, uh, in the French tradition of clowning, you draw you draw the circle on the ground. You have the magic circle. Yep. Yep. And when you enter the circle, the order of the world has kind of like been collapsed and it's your mm-hmm. job to remake it and your 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 attempt to remake it is always tragic and therefore always kind of funny
2: yeah
1: right because you're tr- you, you'll always fail that's why that's why the clown will always end, or a certain kind of clown will always end up with a custard pie in its face but they're, they're scary because there's always a clown which is going to be the one holding the custard pie <laughs> <laughs> but doctor i am pennywise the dancing clown precisely precisely um, and I think this brings up the topic of humor really nicely. Um and to do that, let, let should we should we kind of like focus in a little bit and talk about we, let's yes. talk about some let's talk about some jokes, let's talk about some voices. Let's bring up my boy. Let's, let's talk about Richie. Beep beep richie. Beep beep richie indeed. Um, oh, what? Richie gets
0: beeped. We'll talk about that later, though.
1: Yeah, really does. Uh, what do we think about Richie?
0: All right. So so like I want to do I want to start this off by doing a, uh, a a comparative analysis of Tozier's. Right. Richie Tozier is the and, and, and here's where things get really interesting. I mean, this whole thing is really interesting, but here's where things get really, really interesting. Richie is a clown. You know, like like Richie, Richie is a jester. He's a buffoon. He's he's the court jester to the losers club. He 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 is he's the one who does antics. He's the one who can stand up to the bully and he can do that because he is a clown. Because he exists in a culturally and socially liminal space that gives him a power no one else can wield. Right? Like like he he is unique. He is the character closest to what Pennywise is. Right? This Richie for me is probably the most interesting and compelling character in in each manifestation of it. Because he's the one who's kind of like structurally bound to Pennywise, the clown, because he is the only other clown in the show, you know, and like like this, this also falls into the tradition and history of clowning. Right. And a lot of clown acts, you you would have the kind of the the buffoon who was up to antics and you would have a, a clown that was more of a straight man. Yeah. You know, you would have the clown that they would play off of. And that's Tozier's role. You know, the, the, the evil and diabolical antics of Pennywise are playing off of his clowning. But I think, I think we need to ground this in our three Richie Tozier's, right? We have novel Tozier, 90s Tozier, and then we have uh, 2019's Richie Tozier and 2017 <laughs> or four Tozier's. And the, the first thing that I kind of want to outline with this, right, with our Richies, is who is Richie funny for in each of these texts? In the book and in the 1990s movie, you might not find Richie's comedy funny, right? You might find it juvenile or antagonistic or cruel, but his friends find it funny. His friends laugh with his humor, right? His his friends enjoy his presence as the clown of their group. And he's allowed to transgress these boundaries because he's accepted, right? He's he's the jokester of, of the friend group, right? He's allowed to do these kind of pranks and poke fun because of that. When we move into the 2019 and 2017 uh, Richie Tozier, something changes. And I think something changes for the worse. So something changes drastically and diabolically in Richie's character. And that's he is no longer funny for his friends in tra the Story. He's now an attempt to be funny for us, the viewer. Richie's humor is no longer for the world of IT. As, as a body of fiction for us to understand that he's a funny guy, he's now attempting to tell jokes to us, the viewer, which I think does two things. I think, one, it fails miserably and Richie is no longer funny and that really fucks up his character. And two, that like lassos us and drags us into the magic circle of it because now we're in the losers club. Right. You you might have had some tangential relationships to them before because they're very archetypical characters and you're going to relate a lot to all of them. But now you're one of them. Like, Richie, Richie's making jokes for you because you're his buddy. And there's something about that that generates massive psychic discomfort. What are some of your Richie Tozier takes?
1: I, I, I agree, but I, I think it's maybe even slightly more troubling than that. Especially in the contemporary version, which is that you you're not Richie's friend. You're Richie's observer. You're you're the you're his audience. You're his audience. Bill Hader, who I I love Bill Hader for the record. I think Bill Hader is phenomenally talented. But Bill Hader is so woefully mishandled by the entirety of the 2019 film,
0: which miserably.
1: I, yeah. I honest. I honestly think retroactively makes what I think is a pretty good version in the 2017 film, it makes it worse retroactively because not not only do the jokes now feel forced because they're coming from like a a Gen Xer um, rather than like just a goofball kid, um, but they undercut a lot of the narrative tension itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And the film handles Richie's character so badly, so unforgivably badly. Um, the the jokes don't land at all. So it's not like... I, I like the contemporary version of young Richie. I think Bill Hader's character is just an absolute asshole. And people go, oh, well, that's kind of the point. And you go, but that that undercuts all of what I think is the charm and the appeal and the narrative cohesion of the film as, as a whole. Because like the entire yeah. point, point of the story is that these people cut, these people find each other when they're young actually love one another are friends with one another and and it's that friendship which allows them to kind of overcome something terrifying. Yeah. Um but they don't seem like friends in the 2017 2019 no. version. They just seem like oh he's doing another bit. Guess we've and got he- to go on to another really badly cgi action scene. It, like Richie- he he basically kind of looks at the camera and is like well, that happened.
0: <laughs> so, so there's one scene in particular that we need to talk about because I think it demonstrates how the 2017 and 2019 films fail Richie's character. And you're, you're absolutely right. Richie's character is the linchpin of the entirety of it as a story. If you don't do Richie right, you collapse all of it, literally, at least in my opinion, because Richie is the other clown. And if you don't do Pennywise right, you fail it. So naturally, if you don't do the other clown, the clown outside of the magic circle, our clown, you also fail it. Um, and so we get this scene in the 2017, when they're younger, where, and again, like like the 2017 and 2019, phenomenal acting ca- talent in terms of both our, our cast of young actors, as well as who we get when they come back as adults, as well as yep. Skarsgård. Yep. Just the power yep. here is just, um, if you would have told, like, oh my God, they're, they're all so good but the the scripting
1: fails. Script the scripting and direction fails uh, abysmally and fails very hard in the second part. But um, so so there's a scene in the first one that I think really
0: expresses it all, and that's um, all, all of our young kids. The losers' club is now assembled, and, and they're 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 looking at at a brick wall at posters of a missing a missing girl, and they peel it back, and there's another missing kid behind it, and, and they're like, it's like it's like they just forgot about her, the second some other kid went missing. Like, what's going on here? Why are our friends disappearing? Kids keep disappearing in this town. The adults don't seem to care. Like, and, and they're all like, these are children. These are elementary school children having a just complete meltdown over, over a horror that children should never have to face, but do both in our world and in the story. It is a powerful scene full of dark portent That that is, it's the first moment where like, these kids are like, we gotta. the The adults aren't acting. The the balls in our court. It's so powerful. And in the background, fucking Richie Tozier is fighting with some guy over a tuba.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, we, or a well,
0: trumpet or some damn thing. We, and it's, we gotta it's, have
1: some business. We gotta have some business in the background, and maybe he can do a pratfall later. Like, there's another element to this character which is um, even worse, honestly, and I find I, yeah, I, and and I find borderline offensive. Um, so in the second half of the what we all call the modern film, uh, the 2019 cha- chapter two, each of the full gr- the adult members have a kind of moment with Pennywise, and Richie yep. has one where Pennywise says that he knows Richie's dirty little secret. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about this? Do you want to talk about this? Yeah. So
0: Richie's closeted is is the thing. That's his dirty little secret. And and we get a we get a flashback scene where a younger Richie is like making a move, you know, you know, he's like like there's a there's a there's a boy next to him. They're at the arcade. and He's like, hey, you want to play some more street fighting? You know, it's like like little Richie shooting his first shot. Uh, Good on you, lad. Uh, But as it turns out, that's the younger brother of the town bully. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Which, I mean, like, that—that that is a well-crafted scene. I think that that scene is particularly well-executed when they're younger and they do that. Like, it's dark. It's real, though. But when we get to older Richie, and this is something we're going to talk about a lot more when we get to the discourse zone. this These books fail. Uh, I hate saying community like this. But these books fail any sense of a handling of queer politics. Right? And, and they fail it. I think because the things that they talk about are gravely real, there are plenty of older men, Richie Tozier's age when he's an adult, who who are closeted because they feel that they have like a like the quote unquote dirty secret, right? Like like that that is a very real thing that plenty of men grapple with, right? Plenty of people more broadly too, not just not just as Tozier is. But the, the the book fails it. What are you, what are some of your thoughts before we drag ourselves into the discourse I think, zone?
1: I think very simply, right at the end of the 2019 film, we get a moment of carving initials into wood. Yes, uh, and that is not the same thing as characterization. Yeah, absolutely. Like, th- that's my problem with it. That's my problem with it. I think, um, I think there is an attempt to characterization of like this idea of like uh, a closeted man who's using jokes and humor as a way of deflecting attention. Mm-hmm. but but jokes and humor also bring attention there's a kind of there's there's a sort of like fear that under underpins a lot of that totally get that but this this film and there's another thing in that film which we'll get on uh it's in the film and the novel um oh lord will we ever <laughs> that i think in combination with the how it handles uh richie as a queer character it's not good it's not
0: good. Uh- Pep Pasolini's *The Gospel According to Saint Matthew* give me strength for this conversation.
1: Yes, absolutely. I, I um, think I
0: think we need a palate cleanser though, and I think the palate cleanser should come in the form of a uh, comically large grandfather turtle.
1: I uh, it, it, I kind of love Maturin. uh I, like everyone goes, oh, Stephen King's it's, it's Stephen King. is so gross and sleazy, and it's like no, Stephen no. King is off is often like really weird and sort of spiritual, <laughs>
0: like. Stephen King is, is the sensibilities of a of a little boy and, and both the best and worst manifestations of that. <laughs> and Maturin is such a good example.
1: I I love it. I think I think it's I think it's sweet. I think it's imaginative. I think it's very weird. Uh I'm sort of sad that the film didn't use it.
0: And this is this is something that kind of like Mat- Maturin never makes it into the film adaptations. And if you haven't read the book, which I won't blame you for, because there's, we'll, we'll get into why a lot of people don't read this book later. Um, but like Maturin's wonderful. like, like, And this is part of like Stephen King has a mythos intentionally, right? Like Lovecraft didn't intentionally set out to build a, like a shared universe for his fiction. He just had like pieces he liked using again. You know, he, he, was, he was like a, a prop master on a set. You know, he wasn't co- intentionally connecting his stories. He was just like, oh, I made a really cool set or this costume rules. I'm going to bring it out again. Um, Stephen King, on the other hand, is intentionally weaving together a, a kind of shared lore for a lot of his fiction, especially in mid and late career King. Um, and, and Maturin's weirdly left out of all of this, right? Like, so, so in the story, in the book, there's a, literally a giant turtle who lives in a a kind of a a universe beyond our universe, you know, uh, and and this turtle uh, created our universe, just, just barfed it into existence one day. Um, And and the turtle has more roles when you get into dark tower, it's got more purposes and more cosmic duties to fulfill as all gods have. And, and so what do you make of the fact that the movies leave this out?
1: Weirdly, I I understand it. I think it's a shame, but I understand it because by including it, you necessarily tie yourself into into the the wider Stephen King meta, metaverse, as it were. And I don't I don't necessarily think that's the straw. I like I get that The Dark Tower has an insanely passionate fandom. I like the idea of Stephen King's novels all happening in a, in a shared world. But I'm I'm like they don't have to. That's not that's not a necess- no, no. necessity. No, it's, like- it's
0: not like Marvel, where if you don't watch the Disney Plus TV show, the movie won't make sense.
1: And like my theory about why Stephen King is so popular, and why Stephen King is continually read and reread, is that people like the characters, right? People go, "Oh, it's the stories." It's not. The, it's not the stories. It's not really. The plots are, are relatively straightforward. What people like are the characters, like Jack Torrance. They like Carrie. Mm-hmm. They they like the Losers Club, and it's like you don't necessarily need the kind of metaphysical ba- baggage. Of the great cosmic turtle that, you know, birthed the entire universe. I mean, it's cool. It's a cool idea. Um, and it works for a novel that is basically trying to be about everything, but I yeah. think yeah. It, it would be a bridge too far for a lot of like for for a filmic adaptation that already struggles taking the interiority of the novel into a kind of exteriority. It's um it's a little bit it's a little bit problematic. What do you think?
0: For, for me, so I, the 1990s adaptation of Stephen King's It is necessarily very tightly crafted. It's longer than a lot of cinema of its day, especially popular cinema. But nevertheless, it exercises a lot of necessary restraint, um, which is something we need to do when adapting a book because you can't literally trans, you can't transliterate a book to cinema because it would take an eternity. You know, b- books are capable of different kinds of temporal acceleration that cinema just doesn't have as an art form. In, in the same way that paintings are capable of this kind of temporal freezing that other art forms lack photography the same like like all, all art forms are always these kind of metatextual analyses of time and movement maturin I, I think being left out of the movies changes the shape of the movies because p- part of part of that encounter right so so like what winds up happening in in the defeat of it is that bill, engages in kind of like a psychic battle of wits in the macro universe with it. Yes, it. yep. <laughs> as, as an entity, right? And, and it winds up being like, both It movies are about the power of friendship. Not, not in a way to dismiss that or to downgrade it, but that's what they're about. It as a book is much more interested in kind of like these, these larger conversations about fiction and narrative and history and, and how we remember and what the power and use of memory even is and that's that's simply a different focus. And I think part of this is is a material and economic concern because if you're if you're making an adaptation of Stephen King's It, you gotta sell stuff. And it's a lot easier to sell the power of friendship than it is to sell a a metacosmic discourse on memory and story. Yeah. And that's why that's why Maturin gets the axe.
1: I mean, like the the second the 2019 film uh, has a much worse solution. Uh, in, oh, in way, we're gonna we're gonna
0: talk about old fashioned ass whoopings later.
1: Uh, like it's 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 so it's such a baffling choice that we get rid of we get rid of the slightly weird, almost New Agey cosmology and metaphysics, and we go into something that beat it to death
0: with a pipe.
1: <laughs> we we basically manage to shoot the entire theme of the first part in the head. As a way yeah. of tying up the narrative.
0: Yeah, when you become an adult, you have to summarily execute your childhood. That's how we do it here in America.
1: Yep, yeah, absolutely. You, no, you, Baby! When you, you viciously bullied, were you viciously bullied as a child and uh, dealing with all these kind of traumas? Don't self actualize. What you need to do is literally take it all on yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every every American child goes through this at some point. When you Becoming an adult here in the States means means taking taking a bolt gun to the forehead of yourself as a boy. My
1: God, that what my well, just fuck. As, but uh, yeah. So as let's we're let's talking let's about the kind of rocking. metaphysics metaphysics of the of of it, we should also talk about the other kind of weird moment um which is the deadlights. The, the true form of evil right the true... F- it's it's not yeah cl- it's not the clown it's it's not even the there's there is the light there is the the deadlights themselves what do you think Which, about them
0: well we've already established that the deadlights are a pretty direct metaphor for a truck with a six foot hood height um so I think we can just kind of breeze through this section
1: yeah absolutely wah, 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 eh, eh, eh. Uh, uh, and of course and of course the other way that you can read the metaphor is the deadlights are uh, a, um, a, a meta uh, a meta textual reference to the lights of a of a film set um, yeah of course, you lo- of course. If, that if you look too long into them will blind you into, and drive you as an actor or writer into a kind of creative madness and excess which leads into you know either the highest heights of gothic melodrama or the absolute incoherence of some of King's later work but let's just gloss over that and we I, can move I, on
0: I, yeah I think I mean, it's also it's also a great metaphor for ideology right like like you stare so long at those things and then you lose the ability to move or think for yourself you're because you're beholden now Ooh, very good um, there we go there we go jacques riding a truck with a six foot uh, uh hood height just mowing down the losers club that's 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 in my it remake I just pitched to Netflix call so me we talked
1: about this a little bit just now so let let us let's get a little more kind of like metacritical a little more philosophical with this which is like if we take it across its three versions, it is in in all of its ways basically trying to deal with the problem of of history on the societal level and the way that that's experienced subjectively, which is through memory. And I guess maybe I want to start by talking about the contemporary version and why I I know both of us don't really like it, but why do we think this doesn't work?
0: I I think this I think this gets really interesting. Um and and again like I, I rest a lot of my analysis on this on how the the text each independently handle Richie Tozier's character um but I think once we get to, to kind of the, the these analyses of memory and history um, one of the things I'm really excited to talk about is is kind of a comparative study of the different towns of Derry um because I think that dairy is all dairy Derry is if Richie Tozier and Pennywise are the Clowns, or Derry wise, Dairy is the magic circle that they have drawn, um, and I think that that becomes incredibly important for our, our reading of these things. There's A lot of just just everybody tick the psychogeography box because we're gonna we're gonna do it. Um, but uh, so yeah, why why do you why do you think there's kind of this historic dissonance between the versions of this text?
1: I think it's because the contemporary one is is very faithful to the text but is historically dislocated. Yeah. So the te- the text is set in the 50s and the 80s makes complete sense. Yeah. The contemporary version takes those events and puts them into the 80s and into 2016. Yeah. yeah. And the reason this doesn't work is because events are never comprehensible outside of the social historical political totalities in which they exist certain Mm -hmm. certain kind of anachronisms or certain kind of like what we would now rightly criticize as the problematic elements of the novel we can go well that this that does kind of make sense because it's in the 80s or it's in the 50s so there is a wider political discourse that we can kind of draw upon but the fact that this is like the the first film i actually think is much better than the second because it's it's a lot it's a lot more frightening for a start um, yep. And it's all and, it, and it, it's really well acted, but it's very obviously it's a contemporary film that's showing us the eighties that's supposed to be the nineteen fifties. So it feels it feels kind of historically kind of like all over the place, and, it, and often it's in very small things, but cumulatively you go. This isn't really happening in an identifiable historical past. It's just happening in this kind of like vibe of what the past is supposed to be. And, and really, when you start doing like vibe-based historiography, you sort of start kids. to col- you start to colla- collapse the idea of historical fiction itself.
0: And I think we need to focalize for a moment because you're absolutely right. And vibes-based historiography is is just going to, to burr its way into my mind. <laughs> So it's a vibes approach to history is kind of what I do, <laughs> but no, like, so we, we have to look at the, how the modern film historically contextualizes the eighties element and it, that's through music. And I think there are, there, the, the, the 2017, uh, chapter one, much better because it, it doesn't, your, your, your analysis of its kind of temporal disjunction is completely correct. Uh, we get so so we get like the scene where like uh, we're in Ben's room, right? And what what does Ben secretly have on the back of his wall? It's Uh, uh it's,
1: yeah yeah it's New Kids on the Block.
0: It's a poster of New Kids on the Block, right? Which is a, a a very early boy band. Um, and I think you know like that I think works really well because that's appropriate, right? Because because a young boy in that time period who really liked that music would also have this kind of homosocial uncertainty about liking that music, right? But, you know, like, fast forward a few years and we get this awful line from Eminem, new kids on the block, suck a lot of dick, boy-girl groups make me sick, et cetera, and so forth. And then it gets really homophobic. But, like, that was kind of the cultural attitude towards that, where, like, those were girls' bands and boys who liked them were transgressing, right? So naturally, he would need to hide that from the world. Yes, and Beverly respects the kind of tension of that and hides it from his male friends. Um, uh, but with that also foreshadows their uh, oncoming romantic relationship. and entwines them on a deeper level. And I think it's very well done. And we get a music pop when that happens to it, it's it's a bit of comedy. It is full of the book and the original version have a lot of humorous moments. Uh, I, I think that that's done well, but then we get to the 2017 version and we still need to do these weird like, Y- using like music as a way to grant historiography and, and we get we get the scene um and like my my god we get a scene where like uh, adult eddie kasparak um is is in the basement of the pharmacy and and he's being attacked by the kind of like leper zombie that that it favors when tormenting him and, and it, it starts puking bile all over his face in a moment straight out of Evil Dead, which would have been amazing as, as just like a gross out horror moment. Like, I love, I love it when some kind of horrible monster starts puking all over somebody's face. It's so disgusting. And it's also got <laughs> these wonderful oozy psychosexual elements going on. We've got the, the like a dominating submissive spitting into someone's mouth. We've got like, it is so psychoanalytically rich. Like, I'm always here for for people having ooze puked into someone else's mouth. But in, in this moment, for no reason, for like maybe two seconds, the song Angel of the Morning starts blasting. Yes. And, and there, it's not like it, it wasn't diegetic either. It's not like they knock over a speaker and it starts playing, which would have been a wonderful comedy gag, especially if that would have been set up in the original movie as like, oh, maybe it's his favorite song. You know or maybe we we see him dance dance with a love interest while that song's playing in the background and now here it is mocking him in the future yeah um but it's not it's just kind of it's kind of there as a as a joke for us
1: and you go get for it do, do you get it do you get it do you get the thing we're referencing history Aren't we cl- and you go you, but you're not you're like it doesn't feel I really like the details between Ben and Bev the the younger versions in that. Mostly because, you're right, they feel organic and they feel, like, integrated into the characters as a whole. But as it goes on, like, oh, there's there's a poster for... Oh, what is it? It's, um... Oh, it's gonna really annoy me. What is it? The vampire movie? Lost uh, Boys? Lost Boys. Lost Boys. There's a poster for Lost Boys in the, in the background of one shot and you're like, oh, look, it, it just feels like the film gets so interested in kind of, like, winking to the audience that all of well, that, it's, like... It's- organic comedy of a situation just like gets lost
0: it's not it's not even weak, winking right because like there there is a long standing and established tradition in horror where you make a wink to other horror
3: yeah right? of course you go like
0: totally. you're like hey like you know we can all think of the hills have eyes poster ripped up in the in the basement of evil dead you know like like you you always like and, and that is well respected too you always just kind of go like sup you know like you give the nod the knowing glance to someone that you're like you have a healthy rivalry with or you want to acknowledge the tradition of, you know, you take a little bow. Right. Like, but in this movie, and I think there's a moment where it's like it's not like a wink is coy. Yes. A wink is a wink is knowing. Right. There's something suggestive and subtle and sexual about the wink. You know, but You give none of wink. this is. But in the, in this movie, the, the, the movie theater has uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And, yeah. and big you, old, you, big old marquee letters, and the camera just like just keeps panning and hovering and and tilting, and it cannot stop making us look at that. It's, yeah, it's not like, a do you, wink. Do you this get is a it? full frontal
1: exposure. Like, do you get it? Do you get it? Do you recognize the thing? Look, it's a thing. Do you recognize the thing that you like? I'm like, oh come on, 1980s little... horror. Do you like it? Yeah, we do got you like it. 90s horror. We have got 80s horror. 80s horror is really in. Hey, have you seen Stranger Things? That's what I feel like the 2019 version is saying to me all the time. And
0: this this I think is a larger problem that we have to face and grapple with too because this is 100% stranger thingsified. Yes. Oh, so same yes. with um Ghostbusters Afterlife and like a lot of like Stranger Things has had this deleterious effect on horror and I am I'm, I'm like there are things about Stranger Things that I would really love and really enjoy. Um a lot of, and and again like a lot of these are problems it shares with it interestingly like it just Bizarre powerhouse actors in terms of adults and children cast in Stranger Things, but it's again we've talked. I've talk, I've done this before, rant before, and I won't do it again. But it's in service to an ego commercial that that winds up doing apologia for the Nazis later on.
1: Like, eh, it's a
0: nice, it's a, a Mamma Mia, this, it's no this good. Problem of,
1: this problem of the historiography of the various versions gets us into the kind of political problems. Um. This, like, try as it might to, you know, the novel goes, oh, we're not really doing anything political here. um Like, we're dealing with big political problems. We're dealing with the, the history of racism in America. We're dealing with patriarchal violence. We're dealing with sexual violence towards children and women. We're dealing with, like, police corruption. We're dealing with homophobia. Yeah. Like, uh, all of these things are kind of like, like, all of this is sort of structural. That's the problem, right? How do you overcome structural... Like the structural forces of evil, mm-hmm. um, absolutely. How how do you how do you think the various ad, the two adaptations handle these explicitly political problems?
0: So so I like you know like I made that comment earlier that there's this kind of like juvenile nostalgia that informs Stephen King's hand as a writer, and that's both I think that by and large that's very good, right? That helps him be really earnest and really expressive. And, and there's a certain sense of like juvenile libidinal energy that comes with that, you know, like when when Stephen Stephen King is not shy about exploring racism and homophobia as topics, he, he's he's not afraid of just just turning that dial up to eleven and letting it play.
1: Yeah, we're going um, there. We're going there, folks. We're, we're we're going there.
0: Yeah, and like that's both for better and for worse, and and, and I, I think that affords us an opportunity to have a lot of discussion. But when we get to, to the later adaptations of Stephen King's It, I think something is going on and that's, we're, we're very coy now. We're very shy. We're an educated modern audience with new sensibilities and we we can no longer go there with racism. And, and, and not to say like, oh, hashtag woke cancel culture. We can't use slurs in Stephen King anymore. But it is to say that like we change how we depict things to to be subtle now you know cuz i think the 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 good liberal attitude is that racism is a thing of the past it's a thing of the 1950s you know today today we've won there is a new conversation to have and that's not really the case it's just that the decks were shuffled and things have changed form
1: yes i think i think a really good example of this a really good example of this is uh mike's story mike's whole arc yeah. which in the new version is so unclear that his his happy ending doesn't even make a great deal of sense yeah, yeah. because we don't like it's inc- it's incredibly significant that mike is mike's a mike is a is a black man uh who's living in this incredibly white town and is the one who remembers everything that has happened right and given yeah. given 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 american history itself this is incredibly significant it's important, and it's a, it's a really key detail to the novel as a whole. But, like, the contemporary version itself, it, it this doesn't really work because it spends so little time actually exploring Mike's own history as a character that you go, I don't really get his deal by the end.
0: Yeah, they, they, they change a lot about that. And I think that there's, there's a lot to say about this, right? Because it's great. It's, you know, like black characters in horror cinema don't have to be defined by racism, right? They, they can have arcs and stories and conversations outside that that, that move without out those bounds. But this, this movie, 2017 wants to have its cake and eat it too. Because there's a bunch of scenes where our bullies are like, you don't belong in our town, which we know, we know what they mean when they say that, you know, it's, it's not because he's a Packers fan living in Chicago or something like they're being racist.
1: Yeah. It's because he's a, a, he's a, he's a, he's a black kid in New England.
0: Yeah. It, it, they're, they're being racist. They just, the movie doesn't want to actually deal with that topic. You yeah, know, like, like nine, 1990s it in the book deal with it incredibly clumsily. And, and perhaps even unsuccessfully, perhaps even ways that recapitulate to certain reactionary attitudes, but they try, and and 2017, 2019 seem to skirt the issue entirely.
1: Um. Yeah, I think so, and I think it's one of the reasons that make make, make it so disappointing, especially, you know, it, if you think about the cultural context of the time of that that those adaptations are happening, there was a whole conversation in America about like the sixteen nineteen projects, right? Mm-hmm. The 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 that that's a kind of big cultural issue, and and you know, obviously completely correct. But it's like that you can't avoid the topic if you're dealing with if you if you are at the same time having uh, one of your characters go through. Oh, you don't belong around here, and it's pretty clear why.
0: Yeah, and and we can say the exact same thing about abusive relationships in terms of partners or in terms of parents and children. We can say the same thing about misogyny. We could say the same things about patriarchal violence. Um, we can say the same things about violence uh, uh, to the mad and people with, you know, like mental health issues and the neurodivergent. We can say the same thing about violence towards the queer community. I, I think like all, all of those types of oppressive violences exist in the same kind of formulation in all versions of it.
1: Yeah. I think that's a fair enough point, point. and I guess I guess the question then is why do we why is it do you think that so many adaptations of it or actually so many Stephen King adaptations full stop don't really work?
0: So I, I think this is really interesting, and we need to talk about like oh there's a lot there's a lot going on here right because I mean like possibly the single best Stephen King adaptation is The Shining. Maybe it's of course open to discussion, but like the The Shining is like a critically lauded film. Like like Stan- Stanley Kubrick exercised great craft, along with Shelley Duvall and and all of the acting, and just like my God is such a fucking film. It's a powerhouse. Stephen King hated it, hated that movie because Stanley Kubrick took so many liberties with the source material. It's inspired by The Shining you know it's the adaptation is heavy right
1: yeah um, i mean quite arguably
0: it's inspired
1: by but is it an adaptation you go yeah, yeah.
0: and and so like it, yeah that, blur, that blurs the line between you know like based on a book by versus adapted versus inspired right it's it's playing with that territory heavily um and i i think part of that has to do with the fact that like you can't adapt a, a a book of this length to a movie, unless you want that movie to be like logistics level long.
1: Like yeah. we're, we're talking
0: about a movie that's hundreds of hours. If you really want to like do a one-to-one adaptation of Stephen King's it.
1: Yes. Any, any adaptation is actually an editing.
0: Yeah. It's, it's also a trans it's a translation and it's, it's like, it's kind of like an artistic localization too. Yes. Right, but because there has to be this transliteration that goes on and and that necessarily refocalizes things, it changes issues and it gives us opportunities to shift contexts.
1: And I think but I think a lot of the time what makes King adaptations not really work is that King King's novels are for better or worse like very concerned with interiority. Yeah. yeah. Like, with dreamscapes, with imagination, with, like, having conversations with the great cosmic turtle in a psychological game of wits. But that's not a great visual thing, necessarily. And, well, like, I think,
0: paradoxically, I think the problem is that a lot of contemporary cinema kind of struggles with these psychedelic landscapes, you know, we we've lost the kind of artistic will to do psychedelics on screen, right? Because in order in order to depict a a, a cosmic god turtle g- giving you the advice you need to do psychic warfare against a spider demon from the stars, you 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 need the the same kind of energy that went into like heavy metal or even Fantasia and like. The, the, this w- willing to this willingness to embrace the ridiculous and the excess, but still take it seriously, and I think that's kind of uh, in, in today, like you know, like I, I think of like Doctor Strange, right, and and like a lot of Marvel's attempts to to kind of go there when it comes to the surreal and the psychedelic, but those are phoned in with with kind of like exploited computer graphics labor. And, and they're not giving the, the the kind of space and seriousness that they would need.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think it's... We should talk about the things that we actually do like. I think a lot of the acting in, in uh, both of the adaptations is pretty good. It's a like uh, god
0: tier. It's phenomenal.
1: I think... Uh, yes, actually. Um, I'm, in, in, I'm, in a lot of
0: cases, there are some exceptions, of course.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm downgrading some of the some of the people from the 90s because it's a little bit soap opera acting. It
0: was also, I mean, like the, the 90s thing was a different product entirely. This was the heyday of churning out them Stephen King movies.
1: Uh, absolutely, uh, and I think James McAvoy. Uh, I think a lot of the I think a lot of the adult cast in It Chapter Two are just woefully mishandled. Um, yeah. But if we're going to talk about performances, we're going to have to talk about Tim Curry and Scarsgaard, aren't we?
0: Yeah, we, we we have to. We have to because I think I I love both of their depictions of Pennywise. I, I think they're they're phenomenal and 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 absolutely terrifying. I think they take the character in two completely different directions. Yes. Yeah, to Tim Tim Curry is too hot for his own good. And, uh, yeah. and his, his oh, sometimes sometimes yes <laughs> his well his pennywise has like this kind of like he, it's very human is kind of what i'm working towards here you know like 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 when he when he's talking to uh, uh georgie when he's in the sewer right you, you know like like he's kind of he's kind of winning georgie over yeah right and he's like oh the, whole, the storm washed the whole circus down here georgie and like you know like he's he's fun He's a fun Pennywise, right? You can see how the clown angle baits the trap, right? It's it's he's 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 the 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 little like glowing lure on the hook of, of a larger monstrosity, right? He's he's the the angler fish's antennae, and you know like he connects really well, whereas Skarsgård, I think does does can't do that, doesn't do that at all. But Skarsgård like creates a monster out of Pennywise like like, really b- brings it into this different level of monstrosity where you can see the kind of like, it is the alien stressing in the human form. And, and I, I think like, I think both of them are just so fucking good at Pennywise. What are, what are, what are some of your... Although I think I will say that Skarsgård's Pennywise has failed by a bad sound mixing that makes his dialogue inaudible in most cases.
1: Yes, I, um, I think the sound mix is not great. I, I agree with you. I think the key distinction is movement. Yes, in, in how they move, uh, Bill Skarsgård does a great job. Honestly, like very, very alien, um, uh, and you kind of get the idea that that alienness gives him a kind of magic, right? Yeah. So that's the appeal to the victim. Um, underscored quite well, I think, in chapter two with the scene of the baseball game with the kid with like. The birthmark on the on uh, her cheek Mm -hmm. and you go oh i i believe that like this is a kind of alien with kind of cosmic power uh whereas i think you're completely right tim curry is great very human very funny very very funny um yeah and both of them are scary in 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 both of them very scary but scary for different reasons
0: they're, they're diverging branches on the tree of the Pennywise character, yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. And in terms no, of their nothing, visual nothing oh, but like high praise for them both, I think. Nothing but high yeah, praise. Yeah, and I
0: think in terms of visual presentation, they both nail it. Like the, if there's one thing that I really, really love about 2017 and 2019, it's it's the horror visuals. Yeah. Like I, I think we're we're we we have a visual effects treat in in seventeen and nineteen.
1: Yeah, the production um, design, cinematography. I think the cinematography in the 2017, 2019 mod is great. The film looks just lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, you can they put money into it. They put time into the lighting and the color grade.
0: Yeah, they like, they have more money to have fun with Pennywise when he's the clown.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, and his yeah. moment of human transformation I thought was super effective. Mm-hmm where you seem like smearing on the grease paint. I think that's a great moment in, this, in chapter two.
0: Yeah, chapter two. I agree, I agree. I, I think that that, moment, that moment's also really strong. Um, so what, what do you think then about the exposition here?
1: Oh my goodness, this is the worst thing about the modern version. The modern version cannot help but to keep telling us what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of it, especially in the second half, feels so repetitious... Where you go? Oh, now we're gonna get this. Now we're gonna get the creepy laughter. Now we're gonna. I'm like, it. Honestly, the second the uh, 2019 one, it, it, that you know, we were talking about length. The 2019 one is too long. Is it's, it's too long. It's it's bloated and it keeps over explaining itself, um, which you only re- really need to do if you're gonna get weird and you're gonna do the weird metaphysics of the novel.
0: I, I, I completely agree. Like, like if, if we do want to get bloated here, we need to embrace the kind of like wildness. And they almost do in 27 and 2018. We do get the ritual of chud. Um, <laughs> like, should. Um, should. But like and we do. We do knock on that door. But there's I feel like the, the movie was almost scared to open it. You know, like we needed matcherin, We needed a psychic battle between a, a, an author and a god. Like, it needed to to have the freedom and lack of shame that Stephen King has.
1: It, I think it got a little... I think the film took itself... It looked so good. It was very Stranger Things. It was very in. The first one did really well. And you can't it was, help but... It
0: was too aware of the fact that it was going to be able to sell a Pennywise Funko Pop.
1: Yeah. You can't help but feel that it got a little embarrassed about some of the sillier elements of the of the screen, of the yep. book... And decided to sk- to skip them. Um,
0: and, and oh, I was just going to say, like, I think a great example of this is the rock wars scene.
1: Yes, yes.
0: A kind of a, 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 here's another uh, another comparative analysis of the rock wars scene between 1990 and 2017-19. Yeah. Um, and I think what what I find to be really interesting is they almost strip it of nostalgia for for, for the remake because in the original, like, I, I've you know, like, like I was bullied a lot as a kid and like, you know, like rocks were thrown both at and by me. And so like, there's a nostalgia to that, right? Like there's a kind of like, ah, I've been there. I know what that's like. But but I think even without that, like, like I've talked with friends about that sequence and a lot of friends who don't have weirdly idiosyncratically specific circumstances, like nevertheless kind of like relate to like your group of friends getting into a confrontation with another group of friends as kids. And, and the, the way that that plays out, it's kind of like it, it, it has it has all of the right energy for your group of loser friends celebrating a kind of uh, a well-won victory against the town bullies. You know, like the shape of it is so sound. And in the remake, it's a music video.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You get the rock war and then like guitar track kicks in on the soundtrack. Yeah. And it's like there's loads of like slow mo and it's like. What are, you, what are you doing?
0: <laughs> and I think that this is a misread because in the original, like, the, the rock war is dangerous. It's a fight with people who are trying to beat you. Like, it, it is quite literally a war, a very I, I, small scale, low grade weapons war. But it is like a dangerous conflict. And, and the this, victory is to be celebrated, but it's dangerous.
1: Yeah. And this actually in the contemporary version makes bowers less frightening. And which is a real shame because I think the actor who plays Bowers is the younger version is terrifying. Like, oh, he's really
0: scary. Yeah, he's
1: really scary because there is this idea of like children and young people are frightening, mostly because in horror anyway, because they don't necessarily have the same kind of internal limits on their own behavior that you do as you're when you're an adult, right? So the the idea of like this older kid could kill them and could kill them quite horribly is yep. played as being like very real and very and
0: in and, and, and in the town of Derry could have gotten away with it
1: totally easily and then, and then it's like then it's, it's like uh rock war time yeah it's
0: like <laughs> let's go have fun and have a rock war and that's like i think that's a weird it's it's it's, it's like what winds up happening is we, we have like sign and simulacra happening with this right we we have like the nostalgia becoming a simulation through all of these versions of it right because in 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 the the 1990s it it's 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 this memory it's a memory of what it was like to go through that as a child and and it was horrifying but but also exhilarating and like dangerous real material life danger but also when you and your friends won the day, it was to be celebrated, you know, and it was a bonding moment, but a dark one and like traumatic, but also revelatory. And then by the time we get to this new one, it's no longer a memory of engaging in that kind of conflict as a child. It's a memory of the scene from Stephen King's It.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, I, I think what underscores this is Stephen King's in this one, right? He's in the contemporary one. Yes. And, and, oh, I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> because we're no longer, we're no longer not even doing the like, hey, do you remember Stranger Things? Do you like 80s horror? We're like going, here's the brand, remember? Here's here's the brand that you originally... And it's like, uh, it's so, It's it, it breaks the frame of the film. It doesn't even like, you know... Kick down the fourth wall, it just shatters the narrative coherence of the frame of the film as a whole because you go, Oh, it's Stephen King, right? <laughs> so suddenly, I completely agree. Yeah, I you watch the cameo and you go, Oh, it's kind of fun, but then you realize it's taken all of the pace out of the narrative, it's it's turned it's it's like it's kind of like meta nostalgia, it's not even nostalgia in the book, it suddenly becomes. Nostalgia for the nostalgia of the book,
0: and and so like uh, this is maybe a hot take, but I like Stephen King as an actor.
1: Uh, but weirdly, I think, weirdly, me too. Yes,
0: <laughs> but but I think I think his range is geordie Verrill from Creep show Like, yes. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's it. And I love Stephen King cameos, like Maximum Overdrive and stuff. Like, I love it when you, you give him one line. And, and you let him you let him just do his line and it's it's subtle it's for the audience you get it it's fun to, to have the author in, in the body of the work it's cool like I'm not I'm not opposed to it but I think in this one allowing making making his cameo a metatextual conversation about a book being too long with his insert character letting him talk to himself as it were uh, it's too much it's it's too disjointed it's too in in a, in a double feature that's already so long you're absolutely right it's a speed bump in the progress of the show you would have needed to double down you would have needed to have the same kind of authentic earnestness that King has in his writing yeah and and like just just fucking fully go there make it a make Stephen King's cameo a disgruntled fan showing up at a book signing like (laughs) like just just (laughs) 11 that
1: yeah if you're gonna go there go there commit commit to the bit All right, let us let us let us let us dig on into the discourse.
0: All right. All right. All right. So we just we just spent an hour and 40 minutes, give or take, uh, depending on how this looks when I edit it, talking about the formal aspects of it the novel it the 1990s miniseries and it chapters one and two from 2017 and 2019 and you you know what that means it's time it's time for us to visit the quintessential small american discourse town uh and and have have what i'm only going to assume is a relaxing time with no cosmic clown spider god demons
1: i mean that would be nice that would be nice but um I think I think in order to to make sure that that is or isn't going to happen we have to we have to begin with a discussion of agency. Absolutely. Um, and and the ways the various versions of the story deal with the question of agency. In a way this is a film this is this is a story about growing up. What does it mean to grow up? What does it mean to become a a human agent in the world um what what do you think about how how this i suppose we could call it like the meta text of all of the different versions of it put this across
0: so i i think that this this becomes really interesting because there's you know, it, horror in its own way offers it, its its own historiography, right? Like this is a way of restructuring and telling our history, and we see in we, we see a commonality in all appraisals of it, uh, all adaptations rather that includes this sense of the the adults kind of go numb to to whatever kind of systemic violence they've been soaking in. And the children react in terror until they reach a point where they also have gone numb, and I think that's an overarching theme throughout all of these and how we how we kind of confront that state of numbness and what we do about it. What are what are some of your thoughts about this?
1: I think that's I think that's really true. Actually, that there is a lot in this about the necessity of forgetting in the process of subjectification, mm-hmm. and actually the both the, both the kind of paradoxical necessity and impossibility of forgetting. Right. There's a lot that, like, if you remembered everything that happened, yeah. everything that you did in your entire life with perfect clarity, you, you'd never be able to go outside. Right. We wouldn't be able oh, to yeah. cope with, with just the kind of like deep level uh, anxiety and humiliation uh, that that carries with it. So mm-hmm. there is, ne- there is necessarily a, a process of forgetting that has to happen, a, a kind of like psychoanalytic repression. And the point is not to just constantly recall and relive but to integrate those experiences that have been repressed and shut out of our mind yeah. in, into a kind of like conscious awareness of ourselves as a subject.
0: I, I, could, I couldn't agree more. Right. And there's also, there's a, you know, like it's to, to evoke some similar philosophical frameworks here. There's a certain ideological apparatus at work when we talk about what we remember and how we remember it, you know, like, e- the, the kind of script and narrative forms that we use to address those things that we do remember winds up saying a lot about how we act in the current moment and how we talk about things, you know, like take the cause of environmentalism, for example, like if we if we tell a story of our constant defeat and failure in the face of an of an invincible and insurmountable machine that's that's going to inform standpoints and ways of looking at things not to oversimplify this it certainly is, isn't a totalizing uh, uh element of the overall discourse and action but it's a strong part of it and that's at play in our personal lives too and we, we see that here in the the town of dairy usa
1: i mean important to point out dairy is basically everywhere right or, oh, or yeah. it's or it's it's a very particular... It's, it's an idealized... Well, not an idealized vision, but it's a kind of like imagined construction of a certain kind of America that probably did exist in certain forms through, from the 50s through to the late 80s. Um, And there's something very wrong. There's something very wrong with Derry. Um, and the question... So if you take it as a stand-in for a certain conception of America, the question becomes what can you do what can you do about that how how can you fix that um and each of the adaptations have kind of differing takes on what you can actually do about this the third one the third the most recent adaptation having the worst take on this oh i
0: definitely agree with that one i think that one's pretty pretty crystal clear <laughs> So do we want to talk about, you know, we're we're talking about these formulations of memory and now we're starting to talk about like the the kind of like intersection of memory and place, which is in no way psychogeography. And so I think, how do you, how do you feel about pivoting to talk about our, our beloved hometown of Derry, New England, comma, and nostalgia?
1: Yes, let's do it. Let's, let's do it. Let's talk about nostalgia let's talk about what we could call the stand by me problem <laughs>
0: <laughs> finally we teased this so much in the formalism zone and now we get to talk about the guy who gave us stand by me <laughs> um where, where do you want to start so i, I just want to say like you can kind of what is nostalgia as a broad question this is something we talk about in the show but we i don't think we've yet packed picked apart what it is as a, as a concept right um, like, classically, nostalgia, you know, as a compound Greek word is, is a severe homesickness, you know, like, it, but it has grown to, to adopt a lot of political meanings and political contexts and become a thing in our current moment that is deeply weaponized. You know, all, all, of those, all of those return with a V memes from the right are specifically about weaponizing a kind of nostalgia to, to facilitate a very specific political end. What do you, what do you mean? So, so we have, let's, let's take Derry, for example, right? Like, you know, we mentioned, we mentioned in the, we mentioned in the formalism zone that was longer than most of our episodes, that Stephen King is kind of this Norman Rockwell of horror, right? And I think that that's really important for how we look at how he portrays the past, um, Because we have like this cultural nostalgia going on here. It's not just Stephen King's nostalgia for the idiosyncrasies of his past, but it's this broader constructed nostalgia for like a sense of an American heyday, right? There's this this cultural idea here in the United States that our country was really never better than it was in the 1950s. You know, that that was that was peak Americana for so many people. And everyone from Stephen King to Rockabilly is kind of hypnotized by this. And we'll talk about this a lot later when we specifically talk about homophobia and race in in it. And it and it and it. Um, but we kind of see it at all levels operating here in the town of Derry.
1: Well, I think it's worth flagging off what where nostalgia comes from. So Nostalgia comes from two Greek, uh, Greek words, um, uh, nostos, which mm-hmm. means to go, to go home, uh, algos, meaning pain. Yep. Um, or to, to kind of put it in another way, it's a it's a it's a it is it's the feeling awakened by the inability to regress. Yeah. Right. The whole problem. The whole problem of growing up is. Not only all of the things that come with it As you move forward temporally But all of the things you lose And are unable to get back to You are unable to forget What it is to be an adult again Right, that's what nostalgia is about mm-hmm. um, And there Absolutely. is something There is something There is something kind of like Really unsurprising about that About this this feeling of like Wanting to get Wanting to be able to forget Right you know we want to be kind of freed from the problems of adult existence but there is also something that kind of has a reactionary streak to it in this kind of fetishization of the prelapsarian state of perfected subjectivity that's childhood um wh- what about you what do you think oh i i completely agree because this this isn't
0: the nostalgia of Stand By Me and indeed also the nostalgia of It and It and It and It is, is a very specific, ideologically driven nostalgia. It's it's the desire to return. It's, it's also this kind of like almost a uh, it's like a broken utopia of, of a nostalgic vision, right? Like this isn't even a home you can't go back to. It's one that never existed in the first place and it's a that desire to regress right is also the kind of abnegation of the present which which is something that we'll get into when we talk about how each adaptation ultimately defeats it or, or do they you know well you know the, this desire to regress and to be children again is is also a preemptive surrender in the face of a moment that kind of needs the like post-lapsarian adult mindset in a way that's my new vitamin supplement by the way buy post-lapsarian uh, adult mindset pills today from amazon.com
1: yes yeah 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 it's i think this 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 makes me think about stranger things a lot no <laughs> uh especially in the context of um especially in the context of the 2017-2019 of the adaptation. Um, yes. What, what do you think? <laughs> so I think, like, like let's, let's
0: look, look for a second at, like, what's going on in, in kind of... There, there's been, like, I think a, a, a cultural shift here in the United States about how we depict childhood. And, and we can kind of track this thing evolving between Stand By Me and Stranger Things. Uh, uh, th- both of them are, are definitely demarcated by pop cultural affectations, which is in a sense, a little natural, right? You know, we, we all have childhood relationships to music and because of hegemonic cultural structures, we're often going to share those. Yeah. Um, this is especially true in a contemporary digital sense when we all have access to a similar pool. Um, But like, I think a lot of the, the youthful nostalgia that Stephen King is expressing in in both, um, The body and uh, it and it and it and it. it, I'll stop doing that. I'm done with that joke. Um, (laughs) I lost mileage on that one. Um, But like, I I think something that's changing here is we're seeing the focus shifting, right? Because all like the the boys scraping their knees when they're when they're wrestling down by the creek and then getting a Coca Cola beverage. Uh, from, from the local soda shop, like, yeah, like there's marketing has crept its way in, but in stranger things, I feel it's marketing is the thing that comes first, you know, like this, this is, this is about how can we sell these songs? How can we sell these Eggo waffles? And like, it's, it's become the focal point. Like the thing that it hinges on is advertising revenue and sales. Right. How many how many Funko Pops can we make? Oh, you can buy the Retro 80s Stranger Things light set now, like the Christmas light set from the first season. And and all of our past is for sale. Every single thing is to be mined, you know? And and the depiction in childhood we get in it, there's almost this like there are certain things that it's very difficult to convert into a paid experience. It's very difficult to sell hanging out with your eight close childhood friends down by the river in the woods. You know, it's hard to turn that into a Funko Pop. It's it's hard to convert there, but it's really easy to convert it when you're hanging out with your friends with your Stranger Things branded Duracell flashlight.
1: Yes, um, and I think this is why the most re- one of the reasons why the most recent adaptation feels so weird, because really what it's giving us a nostalgia for is, as you said, this imagined past which never really yeah. existed anyway, but completely now completely decoupled from any kind of past whatsoever because what, what we're being sold, what we're being kind of like given as the aesthetic experience is a set of vibes that none of us have any concrete relationship to <laughs> yes. at all, at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Right. And like, I, I feel like this is one of the it, biggest. It's,
1: yeah. Oh, it's, the, it's the simulacra of history.
0: Yes, precisely, precisely. And it's it, this is one of the biggest shortcomings of 2017 and 2019, right? Is that this this is something we talked in the formalism zone a, a bit about, but this is this is nostalgia for the depiction of childhood in Stephen King's It. This is not nostalgia for a childhood. And otherwise the shape of those childhood scenes would have been a lot more different, like yeah you know and again, like like to to go back to all those Richie Tozier moments where he's in the background wrestling over a trombone while the kids are discussing all the rash of child abductions of their friends from school and in in the background, we've just got some guy fighting with a marching band dude, and it's just that's that's so clearly there's there's a deep emotional cowardice to the it remakes because say what you will about Stephen King's writing and some of the really problematic decisions he makes but he makes decisions and in the new it it's like oh well you can you can focus on the foreground if you want to have serious emotional gravitas or you can focus on the background if you want to giggle at the kid fighting over a tuba or a trombone or whatever and like it's it's so it's so frustrating it's so focus grouped it's it's so
1: done by way of marketing well i think i think to kind of dig into this more maybe we should like so a kind of obvious point I could make is that really this isn't the, the most frightening thing in the story is not Pennywise the Clown. Penny like our evil cosmic spider demon is not the not the only problem, but is rather the the exemplar, the psychopomp of structural horrors that exist in any kind of coming of age, right? And I think it's probably oh, worth yeah. taking it taking a minute to talk about some some of the various problems and traumas and structural issues that all of the different versions try and tackle because on a certain thematic and formal level the novel is a coming of age story right it's it's the bildungsroman it's a it's a pulpy novel of education right what does it mean to grow up um, and to do that you have to deal with the various systemic horrors that of which Pennywise is only the kind of like mascot the figurehead the totem um and i think the easiest way to do this is to start out, out by talking about mike mike hanlon uh keeper yeah. of the history of, of of Derry in all the versions um and how mike is treated and understood in each of those texts
0: this this i think is incredibly important because you're right pennywise pennywise is merely the like symptom in a greater plane of terror you know I, and I think this is one of the things to kind of recognize about the fear that pennywise represents or the type of fear is that it's very difficult for a creature to Pennywise, like pennywise to exist in a world that isn't riddled with systemic forms of oppression like like penny pennywise is merely emerging as a symptom in a plane of oppression you know half the ways, maybe more of that, the ways that Pennywise is manifesting fear in these children is the ways in which they are victims of again systemic oppression. You know, he, he's not just appearing as the mummy and chasing a kid who's afraid of the mummy because of the mummy, you know, he's he's also showing up as abusive parents, he, he's manifesting as all of these other issues. It's very important, but Mike Mike is definitely. The loudest in terms of how, where and how hard these
1: texts go. So let's let's kind of talk about these, like about how Mike is treated. Um, and we talked about this a little bit uh, in the formalism zone, but it's a big, I think it's a big failure of the 2017 2019 version that it leaves a lot unsaid and it doesn't have the same. Uh, kind of unembarrassed willingness to go there that the novel does um
2: yeah the way the way
1: that Mike because <laughs> Mike is Mike is a young black kid and then a, then, a, then a black man in this v- seemingly very white uh New England town um has a has an enormously tragic history which in the contemporary version is never really properly explained but it's only kind of alluded to in various ways. Um, w- what are your thoughts? What do you think's going on here?
0: So the, the kind of the thing that I would say is that this is, th- there's almost a problem that's happening with all versions of Stephen King's It. And that's the, the, this kind of Rockwellian nostalgia that we deal with and, and like stand by me on spooky, stand by me and Stephen King's It is that it winds up also being nostalgic for racism and in in a way that's kind of nostalgic for specific cultural forms and understandings of racism. And I can't help but feel that there's, because in American liberal politics, there is a lot of self-congratulatory conversation around topics like race and homophobia and other types of systemic oppression. And, and there's, a, there's a very pre- prevalent attitude of, oh, well, that's the past and look how far we've come. And, and I can't help but see a lot of that in how these texts treat Mike's character as, as, a, uh, as a self-congratulatory pat on the back to, to kind of this presumed readership, uh, especially as the text flows forward in time and doesn't really ever grapple with these issues. It, it evokes the form of race and racism but mike mike is a background character this is bill's story pre- predominantly right this is the story of our self-insert successful horror author
1: i mean this is what i mean when i say the 2017 2019 one is like vibes based right um because you like if you had made the choice to to do kind of a weirdly maybe a more faithful adaptation of the book and set it in that split timeline of the 50s and the 80s rather than the 80s and 2016 um in in some ways, I feel like they could have they could have made much more of Mike as a character, um, and dug into the motivations of why why someone would would either want to stay or maybe probably more accurately why somebody had to stay, yeah, uh, in it, and didn't have the didn't have the option of getting out, didn't have the option of forgetting everything. Um, and I actually think that that point of like, it's it's not actually about racism, especially the contemporary version, but it's kind of nostalgic for a sort of, sort of like personalized, um, individualized conception of what racism is that, that, that obfuscates the systemic nature of racial discrimination, especially in the context of America and American history, I think is super important.
0: Yeah, to build off what you were saying, like this is it's it's the aesthetic of racism and not racism as a real world material problem you know it, it winds up being an affective representation rather than a, a kind of troubled exploration of what this means for mike as a character and mike and the society in which we find ourselves
1: yeah why mike had to stay why mike is the one who remembers like this is also like it is it's so it's very deliberately done right in the novel that it's 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 uh it's the black character who is the one who kind of keeps the history mm-hmm. who kind of calls everybody back together and so little is done with that really yeah um which I think is such a disappointment but there's another aspect of the contemporary version that we have to talk about here in the context of like race and American history uh we have to talk about uh we have to talk about... The the ritual of really gross appropriation.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, this is a problem when you talk about like American Gothic, but like genocide is is so heavily a, a significant part of that shape, you know, of, of that kind of like the shape of of American Gothic literature, right? Because the space that these stories take place in, it's slavery and genocide. Um, that, that That is what clears the way to have antebellum Southern Gothic and like c- contemporary like c- the, the Gothic of Stephen King. Right. Like, you know, like when we when we look at the shape of it, you know, like dairy dairy is 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 treated as this eternalized thing, you know, e- even though we discuss the prehistory before the settlers of Derry even arrive in, in the 2017, 2019 version, we are expressly told that the, that the reason why the the native peoples of that land left and left intentionally used here is because it defeated them and, and ruined their attempt to to imprison it forever in their ritual. and then they just left the land behind. Uh, uh, conveniently, they they went away just in time for these settlers to show up. And, and what's implied there is that like even even when they're not fighting it, that the people who settled that land are nevertheless capable of keeping it in check enough to stick around. And I think that this unintentionally, I, I do not believe this is, of course not intentional. And I also don't care what the author's intent is all that much, but like this is playing into larger tropes in American media and American culture about manifest destiny, the move westward and how indigenous peoples just kind of went away and left of their own accord. You know, they, they just disappear from the story like a character that wasn't working out. And that is deeply genocidal.
1: Yes, I mean, uh, there's 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 mentioned in the history of Derry. There's the the settlers, the 300 people who just kind of they just disappear, and isn't that strange? And that's a mystery that we have to try and incorporate into a history that we're we're putting together. Obviously, a reference to the the the, the settlement of uh, Roanoke. Um, mm-hmm. But like when it comes to the to the Indigenous and First Nations tribes that were on the land, uh, they just oh they all just spontaneously decided to leave, and we don't need to look into this further.
0: And, um, and th- this this speaks to the aesthetic problems that we're dealing with too, because like this is handled with the exact same,
1: uh,
0: I, I guess, quality and seriousness as the Poochie went back to his home planet bit from The Simpsons.
1: Yeah, he died on the way back to his home planet. <laughs>
0: And that's terrible, right? That's horrible what's happening here. And like the the fact that and I think it's specifically because these texts, especially from this period of King's writing, are so interested in childhood nostalgia, which puts us in conversations with the mythologies and storytellings of our past. and, And specifically what nostalgia is and who nostalgia is for right and like yes it it completely erases that that presence and any complexity that that could bring but what i will say is it does force us to talk about it which is in and of itself something that is needed
1: well i think i think we have to kind of talk about the big problem in which brings all of this to the surface which is in the 2019 version where we have mike recounting um Basically, basically telling a story that would not be out of place on an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast, where ooh, he ooh. like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, like it's this story of how he ooh. he oh he went and met with the local uh the local tribe and the the medicine men and, sh- and shamans and had a kind of vision uh and even you know drugs his friend to get him to see a similar vision, but should we should we talk about here their their recreation? Of of the ritual of Jude.
0: <coughs> yeah, we should. It won't be fun or enjoyable, but we should. And I, I think that this this kind of speaks to what what's going on here, right? Because when you're when you're uncritically nostalgic of the kind of form of the American mythology, right? When when you kind of just you you're you're forever dreaming of, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just have Mayberry and Andy Griffith back? Back when, back when the town had the one friendly cop that you could rely on and he cared about you and the only ne'er-do-well in the city was was the occasional drunkard you had to lock up, like that there, there's never been a moment where that was true. You know that might have been true for a certain uh, upper class white heterosexual audience. Um, but that's always only ever really been true for the ideological apparatus itself. And this connects directly to how the 2017-2019 the it is is using and using very intentionally here, you know, like American mythology about Indigenous and First Nations peoples on this continent to fuel this greater narrative.
1: Uh, yes, especially because Mike's argument is, well, uh, it slaughtered the entire tribe because they didn't believe and they didn't try hard enough. But us oh, who, are, who are appropriating their ways of knowing religious beliefs and ceremonial rites and rituals, we're the ones who will get it right.
0: Oh that that is one of the most brutal things about the 2019 it film. Cause like like just just that whole thing where oh the indigenous peoples didn't believe hard enough. They didn't want it bad enough, but we do. And that's why we're going to kick its ass and reclaim our underscored land. Like to, to put that out in 2019 when I wonder what else was going on in the year 2019 in American culture. If I remember accurately, everyone was a child and we were enjoying soda pop and ice cream p- cones down by the Creek that year. Nothing else happened.
1: Okay, good. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, nothing else happened. Uh, you know, and uh, the big cultural products were not based upon this completely imagined and recycled history that has been reduced down to a few cultural artifacts of consumption in a, in a move of like, honestly, epistemological violence that is genuinely staggering. I mean, this is, it's the liquefaction of actual history, right? It makes yes. it impossible to think the past with any real understanding, either on the subjective uh, kind of individual level, or on the the macro level of like when, societally.
0: When I say that this is genocidal, I mean that very literally, right? This this is part of the project of genocide, cultural genocide, and ethnocide, right? Like, like, like this, this is you know certainly Stephen King's. It will not bear the cross for for the many sins we're talking about here, but like this is nevertheless participating. Right. To what degrees it's participating and how it's participating can become a very important conversation, um, which we're having a part of here, hopefully.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, so so with that said, would you like to move on to a much more pleasant and lighthearted topic? The police.
1: Oh, God, this oh, I was I was flicking back through the opening of it. And my goodness, mm-hmm. there is some, there is some prime East East Coast Boston Irish police right in the opening. Ooh, oh boy, this like this is bad. People like people like Stephen King's characterization, but like somebody very much does rely on like stereotypes and tropes to an almost uncomfortable degree, especially in a novel this big. He's like.
0: He's like handing out four-leaf clovers and clicking his heels before he rides away on a little rainbow to his pot of gold. This is like unbelievable, uh, which I think also becomes you know b- beyond the fact that like this is like one hundred percent a like it's it's comical how stock that character is, yeah. And I think it, it, in a, in a way that like unintentionally puts the rest of the nostalgia in stark relief, y- you know, because like this is this is like the. It's it's like when that character steps on screen, especially in the in the movie adaptations. It's like it's like a character from like an SNL sketch just walks into the 1990s it miniseries and and does does his like Bostonian Irish cop bit and then walks out. Yeah, basically.
1: I mean, there is. It's 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 like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, any book that opens with, like, a six-year-old child getting its arm torn off at the shoulder, you know, <laughs> there's, like, there's, like, a corpse that floats down the river that's had its penis bitten off by... F- like, we're not in the realm of, like, good taste and, like, strict realism here, um, yeah. but, like, the, the Irish cops, who are, like, stunningly homophobic as well, um, are just, just... Uh, amazing i don't know how anyone went yeah maybe dial it back a little <laughs> bit here Stephen.
0: yeah this is this speaks again to my formalist comments about editing being required for like pacing and tone but like oof there, there is a lot of discourse to have here right because like th- there is a lot of complicated history involving the irish people and moving to the united states Especially on the heels of a literal genocide done done by the English government against the Irish, like, and then the the slow like like whiteness as a social position that the Irish slowly gain over time in the United States by way of becoming police and thereby class traitors, like, this is oh this is so oh then we have to talk about Appalachia and
1: ah. Oh. <laughs> But there's two
0: things. I mean, my brain there's two, there's, cannot
1: contain all of this right now. There's there's a point that I want to make, right? Which is that the police, law enforcement structures are basically um, biopolitical and juridical mechanisms of epistemology, right? Yes, go off. Yes. So the police are basically about decoding and deciphering and imposing certain sets of knowledge on a community. Yes. In contrast to... It's revealed that that is effectively useless, right? It's useless and it's useless generationally. However, Mm -hmm. there is another discursive tradition of epistemological uh, structures and frameworks which is so much more useful. And that is librarianship. Here we go.
0: This is something Uh, that we talk...
1: oh, Oh, go on, go on. This is something we talk about a lot, and it's and it's super (laughs) it's super important. Which is access. Shout out to Library Punk. Shout out to our friends at Library Punk. Absolutely, Uh, go listen to that podcast if you want the
0: best left library analysis out there.
1: But this is why this is why that show is so important because history is not some kind of like history is mediated to us through the reception of knowledge right and so the organization distribution and access to knowledge is so important it's a crucial site of political struggle and so the only way like ben and mike are able to kind of like explain and understand what's going on is they have access to the library like we understand ourselves when we have access to history and that's mediated through the organization and systems of knowledge that we have inherited Right? So if you actually want to understand a community, where do you go? Do you go to the police or do you go to the library? And the answer that you give to that question is going to determine what you think about the community that you're a part of.
0: Okay, here, here we go, right? Because this is also a formal element when we're dealing with the media, right? But because we need to ask ourselves formally, why is it that cops are, are recurring characters as heroes in stories, Right. And I think one of the reasons is a formal element, because who else in society is just kind of allowed to know stuff and go places? Y- you know, like like if a cop wants to go into a building to to chase a zombie, they can. No one can stop them. They're the police. If they want to find out something, they, they, they can. No one can stop them. They're the police, right? This is how society is structured. Of course, that lacks a material interrogation of what cops are actually for, which becomes the problem and thereby generates propaganda. But I think the librarian is such a great counterposed character to this because who else has the power to kind of like, as as you were saying, just accrue knowledge to research and understand, right? Who, who else would it make sense if they just kind of knew a bunch of useful stuff? It's such a beautiful just, juxtaposition.
1: Yeah, abs- absolutely. Absolutely. And like, it's so important. Like, how do you, do you, do you understand the problems that you face as being like just specific bad actors who are doing bad things that need to be punished? Or do you understand them as being part of s- symptoms of wider structural problems that have historical roots and have to be understood historically? if they're e- not, not even if they're going to be fixed, but if they're even going to be u- understood properly in the first place. And uh, this uh, is, okay, yeah. off the top of my head, theory. Off the top of my head, theory. Do here, you know we go, re- here we go. Here we go. This is this is just like hit me like a revelation. I think, I think there's a real kind of cultural marker, a shift, as it were, in how we understand knowledge production and how it's pre- uh, how mm-hmm. it's presented culturally. So cause how do we understand research now? We understand it now, it's presented to us culturally now as like, oh, it's the conspiracy theory wall, it's the cork mm-hmm. board, it's the red twine. Whereas actually, uh historically it's about spending time in the library. Yeah. Uh, micro microfiche readers and oh, old so books. Good. And old books, right? And that actually seems that gets given a kind of legitimacy. Whereas like the attempt mm-hmm. to understand our situation now. Without going, oh, well, we should just get the police to arrest the bad people, often gets dismissed as conspiracy theories. So I'm like, it's, it is, it. not only is there a, a historical and cultural reason, there is an ideological reason that microfiche readers no longer feature prominently in our <laughs> cultural depictions of people coming to knowledge and self awareness.
0: Fuck yeah, that is incredible. And I think, I think that, that also just sparked in me a bit of analysis, and that's, what what what's kind of the modus of the research scene in contemporary cinema you you've got a character sitting either at google bing or the clear knockoff of google or bing when they don't want to pay anyone um or they can't secure someone to pay them to put their brand in uh you you get like you you get someone effectively going up to a computer and asking hey what are vampires um, and this, this I think has a problem, right? Because when you're in a library, yeah, we still have problems of access. We still have problems of whose knowledge is being presented and how it's being presented. But when you're hunting for information, you're the one going to get it, right? There, there's an agency at display there. Oh, I have a there's something odd in my town. I, I need, I need to go to the library and look at the history to see if this has ever happened before. You know, you're an active participant in shaping the direction of the culture in which you find yourself. Whereas now, like, you kind of just go like, hey. Hey Siri, what are vampires? And then whatever you rely on, whatever the the algorithm and programmers and board of directors for that company feel like thinking is the best thing that day.
1: Yeah, and it's not a coincidence that lately Google search has just become absolute garbage and almost unusable if you actually want to try and find something beyond the advertised solutions and something mm-hmm. that just happened in the last 36 hours. Right? It's I I I could not agree more with you.
0: And, and absolutely, especially like once you understand how Google uh, page rankings actually work, it, like, like how you generate organic SEO presence and and follow the like your money or your life guidelines and like build up presence with your content. Like you are just gaming an algorithm. Like, sure, it's got to be human readable sometimes, but at the end of the day, you're trying to con a machine. You know, you're, you're, you're doing one up on, on the claw arm game at the carnival. And like that, that I think is like, it reduces information and it reduces the act of knowledge gathering itself rather to that of just being a product, you know, like you're, you're, you're just adding value to, to someone's like keyword placement and that, and that's all it is rather than like doing research. Uh,
1: again, shout out to our friends at Library Punk.
0: Uh, so, should we go from having a wonderful time talking about how incredible microfiche scenes are to having a miserable time talking about homophobia?
1: Uh, yes, um, I think I think we have to. <laughs> I think I think we have to. So, like the the screech Richie of the discursive beeped. breaks. Let's let's do it. Let's talk about let's talk about the the uh, the homophobia, the the depoliticized homophobia um where where do you want to start here
0: well again and i think like this this supports my earlier argumentation about how it approaches issues of race but what we see here is a nostalgia for homophobia right like you, you know we're at a weird place in american history where uh, the, these rights appear to be crumbling rapidly, while advancing rapidly in other areas. It is very accelerated in all directions, in the worst ways imaginable. But there's, there's this kind of like pop sensible vision that we're like post homophobia in a way, right? You, you know, the you know like you know presidential candidates are like oh yay waving rainbow flags and and showing up in pride parades and my how far we've come. But, like that that underlies countless other issues right that 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 you know, un- undermines issues of homonormativity and and who whose victories are there and how they were achieved this this erases and abnegates history as like, oh, like, wasn't it great when when this political leader gave us the right to get married or gave us the, the, these other rights when no, they were actually won by people fighting and dying in the street? and like, it, it, it's it's like using using homophobic pain as a plot device. Oh, okay, my my pre, my presumed liberal readership. Do you want to know how bad dairy is? They're they're doing homophobic violence down there, and like, it, but that's it, it. Winds up being extracted from the story. Like it's it's just there to flex on how bad dairy is and how, how wicked the people are for doing nothing, and it's not actually in the story.
1: I I I I, I agree. I, I I think the twenty nineteen film uh absolutely underscores this because it opens with uh I think arguably the most controversial scene in the book, uh and certainly the most troubling Second? scene in the book. We second? we will get we will get to that. Second, <laughs> uh, yeah, second, um, which is, like a vicious homophobic hate crime, mm-hmm. um, and it's and it's and, lavishly displayed too. We we get oh, a lot yeah. of
0: time to soak it up, especially. I, and it's, sorry sorry to interrupt here, but like it, it contrasts also with Richie at the end how how much volume and and noise in it is spent like reveling in homophobic violence versus a, a a gay man finally signaling that he might be ready to come out yeah
1: right um yeah sorry please continue and it's it's explicitly depoliticized it's depoliticized and it's made yeah. into this oh well that's just what Derry is like and it's like no uh this kind of like violent homophobia is a political problem. Like it's it's honestly it's unforgivable given given exactly what you talked about in relation to Richie. And it's like it this feels it feels like a very sleazy remake of Cruising. Uh, yes. that 1980 uh I think it's Al Pacino. Oh it um, is
0: Al Pacino. <laughs> and and you're like, It is a young it, and suspiciously attractive Al
1: Pacino. So you're like, what is this what is this presented this way? doing in this film at this time yes and i and the filmmakers don't really seem to know other than like well we're doing a stephen king adaptation and he put it in his book so what do you want from us
0: and and again we're not we're not moralists you you know like it's not on principle bad to have such a grotesque display of homophobic violence in your horror story
1: and or film absolutely Absolutely. And, no, we're pres- we're not moralists in the slightest. But the problem is that the violence is decontextualized yep. and deep and depoliticized. Yes, absolutely. And like also, this is this is, is this is something that ostensibly from character where it matters. Precisely. And this is a film that's ostensibly set in 2016, right? Tw- oh, 20- yeah. 2016. Hmm. I wonder if there was any kind of political content that might give kind of meaning and greater significance to violence, mm. particularly against queer and LGBT people. I couldn't wonder, but no, could we just couldn't think of one, and we decided to put in what even back in the late '80s was a pretty homophobic scene. We just decided to do that again, and and it's such a it's such a
0: stock, like like the villains are so stock too. You're absolutely right; they're not in conversation with who's doing hate crimes today. You you know you know it's 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 not like Greaser Benny and his his two best friends Chuddo and Burpum, like it's not this these fucking like cartoonish Power Rangers bad guys.
1: Yeah, th- these evil Greasers that appear in every Stephen King novel that's set it's, in the fifties. It's literally uh,
0: organized fascist paramilitaries. It's it's not like the the goofy bullies from Casper. Like, my yeah. god, how out of touch. How out of touch.
1: Yeah, if if you know, if you were gonna do this and you were gonna do it in a way that actually connected and grounded that kind of violence into a historical and political context, it could have been a really bold and kind of shocking opening to the film. It could that have I been powerful. Could could have been powerful, could have been really effective. But as it is, it feels sleazy and it feels gross. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this ties directly into how Mike is depicted as well. This ties directly into how indigeneity is depicted. This ties directly into so many things, indigenous and first nations peoples. And like, I don't even with a lot of this stuff, it is liberal aesthetics as politics at some of its worst is what's firing off here. And I think, you know, to to borrow a chapter of a book title, Richie gets beeped. Let's let's talk about let's talk about Richie in 2019. Yeah. So this is this is Richie's character arc. It's not in the 1990 it, but it is in the 2019 it. And uh, instead of just being riddled with anxiety and using humor as a way to cope and, you know, like, despite appearing so bold on stage, he's actually very cowardly. Um, The the new Richie is closeted. And as I talked about earlier in the formula zone, I, I think they do it pretty well with the young Richie. You know, when he's kind of making his first pass, as it were, as as like a young teen, just coming into these feelings and these ways of knowing and whatever. And then, you know, like he gets heavily traumatized because he accidentally tries it on like a homophobic bully. And like. Like, like, I think that that that's interesting, right? Like, like there's a lot going on there and I think it's kind of level. It's dark, but it's level. But then you get to 2019 and like. Richie's whole arc, you, you know, his final conclusion is to to finish carving the Richie loves another guy on on the old covered bridge in
1: Derry. Yeah, Richie and Eddie, right? But it's like Yeah. As as I said, that's not character development. That's not actually it's not actually dealing in any serious way. Like again, and this is not just picking holes, it it's the whole point is about this kind of coming of age, right? This idea that mm-hmm. actually you you integrate the awful, shitty things you went through, and you find that you can you can self actualize. You know, King King King, I think, absolutely believes in like horror as a kind of like coming to self realization, right? You Which overcome is right. it <laughs> you 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 over you overcome it with your friends, the ones that you love and care about, and you realize that actually. You're, you're not defined by the horror right there's you can, you can you can integrate all of those things into yourself and that's actually kind of a beautiful thing and but what do we what do we get here we, none of our characters in the 2019 one get anything close to that sort of resolution and but Richie's is the most egregious example of it absolutely it's, Especially- it's, all it is is a kind of reference you know we don't get a character we get a kind of reference to something. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, the,
0: the, this falls into kind of like one of the worst tr- tropes in, in, in media, and that's like queer people. And you can, of course, extend this to race and so many other issues. But like, it, you know, the pain of these groups of people, you're free to display that as much as you want. You can have gay people in your movie as much as you need, as long as they're being beaten horribly. Um, but if it's if it comes time to show them being happy and love libidinal, you nope. Nope, 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 nope. Even at the point where we're at now in society, where we have gay romances on Netflix, et cetera, and so forth, we're still at a point where where the most the most queer euphoria you can put on on a triple A studio release screen is is a grown man discreetly, quietly, alone carving something into a bridge that you won't get unless you were paying attention three hours ago.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And paying um, close
0: attention, too, because you would have missed it if you didn't know what you were seeing.
1: Yeah, because, uh, hey, we can't ever say the words,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. Especially especially in any context that could be even, not even liberatory, just joyous, <laughs> you know? Oh, it's um, so, so fucking frustrating. And, of course, like, you know, you, you can absolutely extend this to how this book handles indigenous peoples and First Nations peoples, how this book handles you know like black americans how this book
1: handles everything else gender like um there's there's another aspect here that we haven't yet talked about uh which is the the kid the loser club's great uh secondary antagonist the town bully the evil greaser um it's uh henry right yeah,
0: yeah, Henry Bowers. We need we need to talk about k- k- kind of a- another another like <sighs> political, material, and indeed philosophical position that it, as both a novel and every it adaptation, winds up in. Um, one one of the groups of people that are kind of like wholly villainized in this are, are people like the mad people with mental health issues. Especially very severe ones, because this is this is the position that Henry Bowers winds up in, right? Like it it is a cosmic spider god that fights with the little literal creator of our universe, right? Its its power is is beyond comprehension, um, and it, it relies on a man who's mentally ill to commit a series of grisly murders. Yes, you know, even even with that kind of cosmic terror, we're still grounded in this point we're still connected to it and it doesn't even have the kind of like there's a kind of interesting discursive quality with how lovecraft depicts madness but because you know like there there is some comparison between henry and like a lovecraftian protagonist that 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 goes mad after witnessing cthulhu or something but like you know like i I phrase lovecraftian protagonists often as like ultra sane They're, they're exposed to the truer and deeper machinations of the universe and now they can no longer function right you know they're they're they understand how things work and that makes them incompatible with how the world operates, which which becomes, I think, really discursively useful for talking about these things in a liberatory framework. But then we get Henry Bowers and he's just, quote unquote, crazy.
1: Well, what's interesting is that the contemporary version especially uh, tries to have its cake and eat it, right? So Henry Bowers yeah. is, a, is a violent racist um, yep. who who loves torturing smaller and weaker children um like the scene with the scene with Ben yep. and like car- carving his name into his stomach is re- like is re- this really obsessing to watch um but at the same time the film also wants you to go oh Henry Bowers is an abused young child beholden to their terrifying authoritarian police officer father um and I'm like, we're trying to have, we're trying to go both ways here. We're trying to go actually know it's entirely reasonable for him to behave in the way that he does because of his upbringing. But also he's this kind of like terrifying force. And I'm like, mm-hmm. if you're going to do, if you're going to do a film from the point of view of children, I think it's entirely reasonable to have bullies just appear as this kind of like, yeah. almost like an, a natural disaster. You know, mm-hmm. seeing, seeing their car ruins your day. You know, it's like it's like a flood. I'm like, that's that's fine. But then we have to go, ah, but Henry's also sad and has a sad childhood. Mm-hmm. I'm like, firstly, that's that's not a justification, but secondly, why are we trying to behave as if it's a justification? <laughs> and
0: this this winds up becoming the problem because it is a justification in the context of, of the film, right? Um like because if you're going to, to make him the victim of incredible trauma, which, you know, many, many people who per, like, like this is the cycle of violence, right? This is how it works. You know, violence is committed to someone and then they wind up reflecting and refracting that in other places of their lives. You know, because because ending these cycles or exiting them or minimizing them is incredibly difficult work. And that's work that capitalism does not favor. So it does not happen unless unless we fight for it, et cetera, and so forth. <laughs> but to to give him that backstory right you know because his dad literally shoots at him and yeah. to mock him yeah, in yeah. front of his friends on top of that and like yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. abuse level the only other character that's receiving abuse on this level is Beverly yes like this is wild wildly grotesque and, and uncomfortable and like to to make the second half of his story oh well he just becomes a crazy serial killer and not a kind of like, because if you're going to go there, you need to go there, right? You need to be like, okay, what, is, what are the cycles of violence look like? You know, you know what happens to his character? What happens to his agency instead of like, but because, it, you know, it's one thing if he's just a prop the whole way through the movie that almost makes it more palatable yeah. in a sense because it's discursively simpler. But to give him so yeah, much complexity exactly. and agency and turn him back into a stick by the end of it, it's just, ugh.
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. This is exactly what I mean where I'm like, you know what? Stick to like the kid's point of view. You don't worry about the internal subjectivity of the of the kid who's kicking the crap out of you at school, right? That's it's just that's just part of the part of the horror of school itself, right? Yeah,
0: and I think there's there's another thing that I wanted to touch on with adult Henry because this is uh, you know like the the, the, the the I think the first and most simplistic and almost maybe the fan analysis layer of this is this is fiction. Henry could have been brought back as a zombie. Maybe he died when he was a teen and it resurrects him, you know, instead of, or maybe he's in prison for the murder and it frees him that, which would have almost spoken better to the cycles of violence we're dealing with. But because he's mad, right. And he's locked up in a madhouse, and he's like hooting and hollering at the walls and jumping around. And like in a very, what feels like an incredibly awkward and dated depiction um, of people with extreme mental health problems. And like, this does call into question something important, and this does beg who gets to dictate the nature of their care, right? Who as a society do we afford the agency to say, no, this is how we will care for ourselves and be represented. And we have a seat at the table when it comes to you know directing the course of our own history, right? And this this weirdly brings Henry Bowers over with Mike and Bev and Richie. Right, the, the in and in, in the, the kind of invisibilized but ever constant presence of indigenous people in this story, it kind of moves him over there at the end, which the just like discursively, this is just so
1: fucked. <laughs> I mean it's it's interesting because like there was there was a real anti psychiatry movement between the fifties and the eighties, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so so the idea actually you you don't even have to have it as an escape, right? You you could have Henry Bowers was never incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Henry, oh yeah, Henry yeah. was Henry was was He's the new sheriff. He he was he was he was released. He was in he was uh, integrated back into the community, right? And then you then we really could have an interrogation of generational violence and trauma, yeah, and the way that that cycle. Doesn't just enact itself on the on the microscopic social level, but is lived out over entire lifetimes. But no, what we get—that's <laughs> not what we get here. Yeah, yeah. What what we get is this
0: kind of eugenicist framing of mental illness, right? Oh, he's crazy, therefore he's predisposed to be a serial killer, and keeping him locked up at the hands of violent orderlies was the best thing we could have done anyway. Like, yeah, like exactly. Is, in in infuriating, infuriating when things change dramatically, when like p- people who exhibit the kind of bullying behavior that Bowers does, they, they they become the orderlies. They become the apparatus of the psychiatry, you know, like psychiatry hyphen prison complex. Like he, he would be, he would be a sheriff, right? He would have his hands on the key ring of oppressive systems to continue with his like
1: thematic arc. 100%. I think that's an entirely reasonable argument. And it would be a, a bold adaptational move, right? It would t- it would take it would take some kind of like because I think in some ways this the contemporary version is way too faithful to the novel. Oh, yes. Because this, it's made the yeah. because it's made the decision to put it in into the present day, it doesn't at all interrogate what what are the present structures? Where, if, if, if this is a novel about the systemic rot of idealized Americana, where mm-hmm. are the present structures that are starting to exhibit that same kind of decay? Ab- absolutely, absolutely. It, it, it tries to
0: modernize and still remain the exact same novel, which really hinders like the, the beauty of an adaptation. One of the reasons I'm so excited for Rob Zombie's version of The Monsters is that I, I explicitly trust Mr. Zombie to exercise his judgment as an artist on whatever text he's been handed. For better or for worse, this is going to be Rob Zombie's The Monsters. Yes. And and that will no doubt infuriate and, and spark joy and discussion, and because you know there's the strength of character for a decision to be made. Yes. You do not get that in 2017-2019. The things it's attempting to update it wind up recapitulating to the same kind of, to this, this kind of simulacra of
1: nostalgia. I think there's one other character that we should talk about in, in this, in this context. And I think Absolutely. we have to talk about, we have to talk about Stan. Who does not appear at all in the, in the second half of our story. um, Or, or uh, exits the story relatively early on in the novel, structurally speaking. Um, what, What do you think about Stan? What do you think about what happens to Stan and how Stan is treated? So Stan's whole
0: arc is that when it's time for the gang to get back together and defeat it, Stan is overcome with fear and commits suicide instead of heading back to Derry to fight the fight. This is framed as a noble sacrifice. He takes his own life because he knows that he doesn't have the strength of character to face it and thereby dying solidifies the group's resolve when it comes time to, to battle it. Once they know that one of their number has already been claimed and in a particularly tragic way, it will steal their hearts for the battle to come. I don't
1: like this. <laughs> uh, there's, there's good reason not to like it.
0: And it, this ties right back into like, because, you know, for having a conversation of mental health and madness, suicide is right there. It is right there in the conversation, um, and it's again like we have a question of who 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 are these narratives for? Who is queerness for in it? Who 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 is race and racism for? Who is genocide and the history of indigenous peoples in North America for in it? And and it's not for the people who are kind of in the orbit of these things and damaged by them and living inside of them.
1: Yeah. What I... are your thoughts? I think it's it it's an instrument it's in it instrumentalizes Stan in a way that yes. is really kind of distasteful because you spend a lot of time uh again in the film you spend a lot of time getting to know Stan as a kind of kid um and you see the kind of tensions but there is no there's no arc right Stan is is a kid who's afraid and then grows up and is afraid and is turned into an instrument of the group's self-actualization, right? It's about obliterating the individual um, rather than actually kind of giving them an arc. And it's it it's weirdly a kind of romanticization, yes, of su- of suicide. You when it's when it is framed in these terms of nobility, mm-hmm. um. I, I don't know. I I I, I don't like it. <laughs>
0: no, and I think this is this is really painful to grapple with, right? Because th- these issues are so complex and they're so multifaceted, and, and approaches to to death and dying are are so fraught and troubled. And then you you get this, which kind of like this isn't even the noble sacrifice of like. It's it's about to, to get everybody but he jumps in the way at the last minute and 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 falls on the sword in order to save the group it's it's not even that kind of sacrifice that we often see being forced onto the position of other people in cinema and literature this is just
1: so weird there's I mean, something there's in, something about it that's so novel, utilitarian in the novel I think it's done slightly better because through flashbacks, of stan as an adult you kind of see an accumulation of unresolved traumas yeah um so there is a there's a degree to which i think the novel handles it slightly better but i still think it's i I just think it's a I, I, i just think it's a weird choice
0: yeah the novel the novel at least opens the door for us to have discussion of what it's like to live with a lot of pain and to not have a good way to to get that into the world Yes. Or to, to let that leave the body or, or in a sense to turn the black soil of suffering in, into a wonderful crop, right? Or, or a flower or something, you know? And <laughs> Oh dear. Sorry, a Pracy just, just escaped into the real world there. I usually keep them contained. Um, but like with, with the 1990 movie, especially I, I think is – maybe worse in some ways it's worse in yeah. unique ways because like all, all we know about him in the future is he's like in, in a loving in a loving marriage with presu- the, they're presumably swingers or at least some some kind of like they're wonderful happy perverts having <laughs> having all the fun sex in the world whatever whatever that whatever that particular sex might be they they're clearly having a blast you know and like it seems like it seems like he's like what i'm getting at is it seems like he's in a loving relationship that's very mutually supportive and i would go as far as to say healing and and whatever like you know because it takes a lot to be to be in a position where you can be that open with your sexuality and what you want even if it is something i I don't know mundane or normative right like like to to be that euphoric and open and to have a partner that's a euphoric and open signals a lot of health and growth you know and, and to, to kind of, like, leave that underexplored
1: is is such a letdown. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, there's there's some interesting stuff in the novel where they talk about Stan and his uh, wife's struggles to conceive. Yes, yeah. Um, which I think is, again, you know, just as you were saying, this idea of, like, uh, giving you more of a sense of what is what is it like to exist with pain that is often sublimated but is never confronted yeah um
0: yeah stan is very literally unable to to bring new into the world new as a concept you know absolutely defined and bound by these kind of painful traumatic chains that and again like this does force us to, to have a greater conversation because the next thing that we think is why why is stan like this why why is he unable to let go and i think that that if you have good Historically, materialist, principled left analysis will lead to some interesting places.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? That uh, Stan is is the one who has a bar mitzvah. Yeah. Oh my god. Fuck. There's this stuff too. Oh Jesus. Right. Man. Like, like Stan is the one who who has a kind of like, um, re- theologically and socially, religiously mediated literal coming of age, right? Coming into yeah. manhood. But in a way, can't ever really get out of who they were when they were like eleven years old.
0: Yes, yes, and that and and his and his religious background, his cultural background, does also place him with all these characters that have been othered that suffer greatly <laughs> through the course of this.
1: I'm, I'm laughing out of like agony here, like. Well, I really. I- yeah, go on. Go I think on. maybe what we should do is kind of like place down in context then and talk a little bit about friendship. Yeah, let's do it. Uh and talk about the group as a whole, which is that there is a a kind of like uh well we've talked a lot about the ways in which this novel struggles uh, the novel and the subsequent adaptations struggle to really kind of like bring forward the 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 queer aspects to the various characters but there's a lot of tedious heteronormativity in this as well yes it's very bland let's talk about the like there's the world's most boring love triangle
0: <laughs> and and this yeah I, I don't i don't think that it's I don't, I don't, uh, this one, this one is so hard to, okay, because we have, we have Haystack, we have Billy, the author, and then we have Bev, and they have a love triangle, right? And like the, the love triangle is, Haystack is the beautiful poet that writes the, the letter that wins over Beverly's heart, but Beverly doesn't know who wrote it. It was, it was anonymously given and, and kind of that shape yes. of like anonymous, anonymously sending a love letter is, is not only very juvenile in a good sense, appropriate for the context and what's going on here but it's also deeply gothic you know kind of the the missive with an unknown author that has dire portent for your life good or bad yeah there's something about the the purloined
1: the purloined letter right yes the Mm -hmm. letter that the letter that arrives but its origin is always unclear
0: absolutely and 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 a lot of that stuff i like but how it and 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 some of how it plays out I, i really enjoy you know like the, the your hair is winter fire like how, how it utilizes that later on as a way to attack um ben is so yes. I, I find really interesting and it's like some of the best stuff with it you know when when, he, when he's using that to to freak ben out and to get to him and like um and how that almost like in the 1990s version almost ruins his relationship right because when beverly does come to the realization of who actually wrote this letter that she's been That like the one of the things that has lasted with her, one of the few memories of Derry that stuck was this romantic letter. Uh, There's some there's some there's some good stuff to that in like a gothic romance kind of sense. Um, But but what what are your some of your thoughts about that love triangle? Uh,
1: I think it's very boring.
0: Honestly, (laughs) I think it's. I I was I was picking out the things I like.
1: (laughs) But let's 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 talk about the thing which we have been sort of dancing around here when it comes to love and friendship and sexuality. Um oh Do you want to do you want to ex- do you want to explain? No. What, what I'm going to call what I am going to call what I'm going to call the scene. Do you want no, to do you want to explain uh, this? Uh, just
0: like 1990 and 2017 and 2019 moving on. <laughs>
1: No, I, you know what? I think, unlike the other adaptations, we have to confront this head on. Yes. We have, we have to, we
0: have to go where no it it conversation has gone before. I mean, not to phrase it that way, so many people have talked about this, right? This is a very heavily discursed. Um, Yes. Okay. All of the adaptations get a little
1: squeamish around a certain sewer scene. Okay. So, if you have never read the novel, there is a moment in the 1958 timeline where the kids go into the sewer. Yes. Uh, To defeat it And they defeat it f- f- for the moment They are wandering around Lost in the sewer mm-hmm. And then these 11 Slash 12 year olds uh, They ha- Perform a kind of magic sex Ritual In which Beverly yeah. has Be- Beverly has sex with each of the- Each of them uh, And she they they ground themselves as a team and find the way out of the sewers yeah um, <laughs> it is it is not unfair to say that this is like one of if not the most controversial scene in a in a stephen king novel
0: i i would go as this is easily single-handedly the most controversial scene in in anything Stephen King has written, especially when you factor in the the wild popularity of it as a novel and as a piece of cultural uh, ephemera in general, it's this, it's. This, oh, I was just going to say quickly, like like this this might even be one of the contenders for most controversial bits of pop ephemera in the last like forty
1: years. Um. Okay, so I'm. I want to share something with you. <laughs> I want to share something with you cuz I was trying to I was I was I was trying to kind of like work this out, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and I found I found that the horror author Grady Hendrix uh, f- quite a few years back over at tor.com did a reread of all the Stephen King novels. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to share something f- from you from Grady Hendrix's piece about It and Let's see if we can kind of like work our way through this super controversial scene. Um, So here we go. Hendrix says this. A lot of people feel that the right age for discovering King is adolescence. And it is usually encountered for the first time by teenage girls. How often is losing your virginity portrayed for girls as something painful that they regret or that causes a boy to reject them in fiction? How much Mm -hmm. does the media represent a teenage girl's virginity as something to be protected, stolen, robbed, destroyed or or to be very careful about? In a way, it is a sex-positive antidote, a way for King to tell kids that sex, even unplanned sex, even sex that's kind of weird, even sex where a girl loses her virginity in the sewer, can be powerful (laughs) and beautiful if the people having it truly respect and like each other. That's a braver message than some other authors have been willing to deliver. What... What, what do you think?
0: <laughs> so I think I think that that is actually a very useful way to assail this scene. And this is the thing that I wanted to talk about in relationship to this scene. Right. Because it's awkward to talk about no matter how you slice this cake. Right. Uh, enough said about that. But what I like about that reading is that it returns a lot of political agency to Beverly specifically. It returns a lot of agency to the rest of the characters in the scene and it returns a lot of agency to us, both as critics of media and as fans of media who read and enjoy it, you know, for entertainment and pleasure and edification. You know, like there, there is a, a, a lot of the conversation around the kind of sewer sex scene, sewer orgy. Uh, just, again, awkward. Um, but a lot of the conversation around it winds up falling into a individualistic and moralized political context. You know, it 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 is either a good or bad thing that happened. It is it is often bad because it is moralized, and our characters are moralized, and a lot of that it becomes the 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 wickedness of Beverly, right? It plays into these things that we're talking about,
1: but I think we can have rather, or rather, uh, often the wicked the wickedness of Stephen King.
0: Yes, 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 the wickedness of Stephen King. (laughs) Um, You're absolutely right about that too, because a lot of this is is kind of laid on his shoulders for having been someone who created this in the first place. And I think it's, it's much more useful to have a a very complicated conversation about a very complicated scene. And and and
1: your thoughts. I honestly, I don't know. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think um, I really like Grady Hendrix's point. Um, you know, another another very small snippet from that piece over at Tor. Throughout the book, Beverly is not only self-conscious about her changing body, but also unhappy about puberty in general. She wants to fit in with the losers, but she's constantly reminded of the fact that she's not just one of the boys. From the way the boys look at her to their various complicated crushes, she's constantly reminded that she's a girl becoming a woman. So the fact that having sex, the act of doing it... Her moment of confronting the heart of this thing, which makes her feel so removed, so isolated, and so sad, turns out to be a comforting, beautiful act that bonds her with her friends rather than separates them forever. Is King's way of showing us that what we fear most—losing our childhood—turns out not to be so bad after all. I do. I do think this
0: this shows well, and, us kind of the evocative I, power of Stephen King as a horror writer.
1: <laughs> and I don't. I don't. I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, Ultimately, um, uh, I think this is, it's a really good way of dealing with it. And I think whatever way you kind of, whatever way you slice it, however you you want to approach the book, that scene is kind of like the hinge point of the entire thing, right? People go, oh, it's a mistake. It's a kind of like, and you go, "Mm, yeah, maybe. It might be easier to think it was a mistake or it's a lapse in good taste or it's like, uh Stephen King is this uh misogynist uh, and you know what I I think it's it's perfectly reasonable to have all of those to, to to read it in those ways but I actually think it's much harder and it takes you into much more interesting territory if you go actually maybe it's deliberate and maybe it is the um the thematic core of the book in some ways
0: yeah, absolutely. Because okay, I think I, I too am undecided ultimately about this scene. And I think that indecision is, is again, actually a course taken, right? The, the, that uncertainty is a way to go. Um, and it's important because I think a lot of the discourse around that scene wants to wants us to not talk about it, not confront about it. The reason it's left out of the adaptations in kind of any sense is is because it's easier to not think about it you know, it's easier to not kind of confront the complexity of what's going on here in, in terms of these characters and their growth and their agency or lack thereof. Um, it, it, it is
1: deeply political. I mean, it's all, it's unrepresentable, right? It's, you can't, yes, of course, It, it it's not literally. something that you can do. <laughs> it's literally unrepresentable in in any kind of like sense, but like, it
0: would require tra- transliteration, right? They would have to be as adults doing that, of course.
1: Or, or you deal with it thematically. You deal with you yep. deal with the with the fact that like part of part of like leaving child childhood behind is is uh kind of adult sexuality, but like so much of the sexuality, especially in the contemporary version, is like obfuscated or only barely hinted at. Beverly's character gets a little more development in that regard, but Beverly yeah. gets so little gets so little agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, the thing that I the thing that I'm angriest about is they cast Jessica Chastain, who is a yeah. staggeringly talented actor, like and an amazing actor for a horror movie, and gave Chastain nothing to do other than occasionally look sad. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a complete like, waste. Like like that scene is is uh, in bad taste, shockingly controversial, deeply problematic. But I, I do agree is trying to get at something deeply profound about the process of kind of growing, of becoming, a, a, becoming an adult. Um, and I think it's so telling that none of the adaptations touch on it.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. There's a lot going on there. And it, it, it does us good to have a kind of frank and open discussion about that as a space and as a thing with a lot of chartable coordinates rather than as like this mistake, this bit of controversy, this thing that has to be written out out of all, all future things. Because there's another aspect of this that's woefully unexplored. And, and Beverly has a lot of complex representation when it comes to her gender. You know, yes. like it, it, this is especially highlighted in, in the newer version of it, but it's also underexplored, you, you know, and like like especially in the context of 2019 to 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 leave that on the table as kind of just a just a thing in the background like for, for like this is the cowardice. The cowardice is to not transliterate and explore the text that's there. Like that's where the mistake yeah. comes
1: from. Yeah, abs- ab- absolutely, absolutely. L- like, like we said when we were talking about the formalism zone, Stephen Stephen King is willing to go there, even if you go, yeah, maybe you shouldn't have. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, a- absolutely. So I, I know I know you wanted to say something about marriage in the context of Stephen King's Clown, Spider, Demon, Space God movie.
1: Uh yeah um, it's another bit where the 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 kind of sexual politics. Sexual politics of it are not great. Um, no. So uh, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie gets married, but Eddie uh, is basically like the henpecked version of himself as a child, and marries his his own mother. Like in the novel, that's how it's explicitly framed. Yes. Yes. Uh, he's he's just become a psychoanalytic cliche. Um, Bill gets married to a, a British actor. And they have a very mm-hmm. kind of slightly strained relationship um, to the point where yeah. where Bill's wife actually is comatose at the end of the novel.
0: And it's, it's, um, it's heavily, what, I mean, it's kind of expressly said that she's cheating on him too, because he works too much and he doesn't, he doesn't give enough to their relationship.
1: Yeah, exactly. So what do you think about, what do you think about how, how the novel is dealing with marriage? Um, I, I think
0: no, nobody, like, so the, the only good relationship winds up being Ben and Beverly. And that's, that's good because we don't know anything about it. They, they literally ride off into the sunset together. Yes. You, you know, like we don't actually, because it could, there is a lot to process in, in a relationship with someone you have that kind of history with. You know, like what, what a complicated love that must be. Which wouldn't make it bad. It would make it incredibly interesting and in the novel and in the adaptations woefully underexplored. But I think we wind up seeing like we we have an interesting problem here because a lot of there's a lot of absent parents in the world of it and all the adaptations. Parents either die tragically, they're abusers, they're they're manipulative, they're left out of the picture There's not really a, these are all latchkey kids, you know, there's not really a strong home life to come back to. And it's, it's telling that they all wind up recreating that in their own way. You know, like even, even Ben, you know, he's, he's depicted as being a womanizing sleazebag as an adult. You know, like he's, he's the, he's the hard drinking, sleeping with random women. He doesn't know their names. Like, like that's, that's kind of what his character winds up before he's reintroduced to, to the one true love that, that his Rochester heart has always burned for um, and I think that's one way of looking at it right there's this absence of adulthood as as a stable reliable thing in all of it both when they're children and when they're adults
1: I think that's a really good way of kind of joining the dots um, and maybe it's worth then uh, talking about how if this is how family and marriage is represented what what about place? what do you, what yes! do you think about the what do you think? Let's do some psychogeography. I know you're excited about this. What do you think? About, <laughs> what do you think about it's it's sound the psychogeography alarm? <laughs> let let word ring forth on the hills of discourse. Um, yeah, yeah. Breaking cases, case. Of various,
0: international. <laughs> uh,
1: what do you think about the various different versions of dairy? So okay, uh, this is something that's
0: really interesting because nobody talks about it. <laughs> unlike that scene, unlike the sewer orgy, uh, which which nobody talks about, but every but very in a way that is so psychoanalytic as to bring Freud literally back from the dead, nobody talks about it, and everybody can't shut up about it. Yes, correct. But what's the thing that no one's actually ever talking about? That there are three different versions of Dairy. Each adaptation gets its own Dairy. And this this I think is really interesting because not only does it have a fate, not only do all of our characters have, have a fate, the town itself has three different fates, right? Yes. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna lay them out really quick in case you're not up to date on your it lore. Um in the novel, the town of Derry, um, after the defeat of it, is literally destroyed. It, 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 the, the, the corruption has been removed, but now the town must be cleansed away. And the sea rises and swallows dairy. Like it is, it is killed as a place. Um, in the 1990s version of it, um, when they're young, it's, it's the classic American town, you know, like it's, it's got, it's got main street with the theater where, where the cool movies are hopping. You can go to the arcade, play some games, hang out with your friends. It's kind of the picture of, of where like this nostalgic Rockwellian vil- vision of American childhood should be. But when they return as adults, The city is now corrupted. The theater is closed, which really, really upsets Richie. Um, Yep. And like the town itself has just further rotted away, you know, and it it is, is very much that nostalgic return. It's the pain of attempting to go back to childhood. You go back and you see that like wonderful magic theater. It's no, it's just a business and they've had to keep up with the times like everyone else. You know, like, oh, the chain stores are creeping in now because you can't do mom-and-pop shops as easily these days. Like, like the landscape has completely changed. Fast forward to 2017-2019, Derry, the town stays perfect and idyllic always. It is always this Rockwellian vision of small-town Americana, and it as a body does not suffer from the corruption of it, the monstrosity. Yeah, would, you, would you find my appraisal
1: fair <laughs> i think i think you're being entirely fair and what that does is it universalizes the problem um uh, that the the losers confront in the 27 uh, 2019 version right what can you do why because yep. nothing's going to nothing's going to change you can't fix anything you can't even sink the town into the sea because it's just going to be the same thing i i really like the novel's representation of Derry because me too I think the palimpsistic nature of the text allows you to get kind of like a a deep sense of this being a historical space Mm -hmm. yeah i think i think the 1990 version does some interesting things with its presentation of Derry. i like i like the sense of a kind of creeping sensible loss yeah but yeah i i think a great way of understanding the a historicity of the contemporary version is to look at it psychogeographically.
0: I, I, I think you're completely correct. And there's so much to look at here, right? Like the the, the fact that Derry as a body, right? Like 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 the town as a thing that that's also been alive all these years it, is it needs to be put to rest by the end of the film. Or by the end of the novel rather, that like it hasn't just been damaging the people who reside on this land. It's kind of been Damaging the culture that's been built on top of it, and this this further kind of signals like who who Whom's land are are we upon? You know, we're washing away dairy at the end of this. It's kind of this colonial settler presence that's being sucked back into the sea. Um, there's kind of like you you can explore that as a way of of healing the land, and it doesn't go as far as it needs to, but it is nevertheless discursively interesting. And this also, I think, there's so many ways that we could take this, but also Londonderry, our Irish police oh, officer. Yeah. We're, yeah, we're yeah. knocking around some complicated politics when we wash Londonderry back into the sea. Like, And, and I think the, the text is kind of inviting this conversation when you destroy it with an act of God. And, and it's, yes. it's, it's teasing it when you see how corrupt it's become with time and it's trying to convince you ideologically that small-town America is always great and pure if it doesn't change at all.
1: Yes, which is why I think the 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 second the contemporary adaptation is uh, seems to miss so much of what makes the book interesting, especially in, in terms of effects.
0: Like it's never been easier to destroy an entire town with a tidal wave. Y- you know, it's like, <laughs> <for> 2019. <laughs> We could do that. That's easy. That that that's a couple non-unionized graphics shops being being whipped by by a, a film film CEO. Like that's that's achievable. It's not like it was in the early '90s where you actually had to wash a town into the sea or do animation and like computer graphics were very very early. Oh, but yeah. Nevertheless, like I think that that winds up being one of the most interesting things for me in the original book is is when the town is destroyed. It, and, and the fact that it is kind of d- destroyed after it, you, you know, and like because that, I mean, God, there's I think about so much with this, but like, it has been like this psychogenic rot in Derry for for time immemorial. Nevertheless, it it is now a part of the town's structure. The very shape of the town can no longer continue to exist without this cycle of terrific violence inside of it. And I think that that's a really powerful thing to have to confront, that all of the adaptations for what I'm assuming is effects budgeting, uh, because you want to put more money into Pennywise, naturally. You don't want to put the money into like some big tidal wave scene that nobody remembers. But like, yeah, it it winds up being so important.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I think the 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 novel gives a kind of a weirdly sort of optimistic take on it, which is like, you know what? That system, that that architecture of history, it can be washed away. It can be put back into into nature, right? And there could be yep. you can ride off and you could find something better. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, what, what like washing it away. Like we're literally washing the wound clean at the end when we get yeah. rid of dairy. And that means that Absolutely. the future for what happens in that space is open to us. We get to decide now. The agency is returned to us as a reader. We we get to go even even in the most k- kind of juvenile manifestation of this we get to kind of daydream of like oh what could happen with dairy after that what could happen in that land in that space with these characters and there's something powerful about that.
1: Woo okay are we are we there? <laughs> uh, I think with I I think we're there I think we're there.
0: Oh, dear listeners, if you're if you're at this moment, if you've crossed this finish line with us. Uh, uh you did it. You did it in the final moment when we were all down and we were all defeated, you found the forged bullet made of silver and you destroyed its its vile heart. Uh we're now all being washed out into the sea so we can be cleansed by by the movements of time and nature.
1: This has been this is we we have we have put the work in this Halloween. Um oh.
0: <laughs> this has been i've never had so much fun and I've been so exhausted i i uh
1: i want to say want to say thank you to everyone listening but thank you to our patrons the most because yes um it was our patrons who suggested we tackle the apocalypse trilogy it was our patrons who suggested that we try and tackle every version of it <laughs> um, thanks <laughs> Uh, but thank you, thank you for joining us on this epic quest. Oh dear,
0: oh dear. Well, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go right off into the sunset now. Uh,
1: yeah, uh, hi ho, Silva, away. <laughs> 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 okay, it's gotta end on that.
0: We hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.